0: Support for Boston Public Radio comes from Safety Insurance, offering a variety of home insurance products to cover your home's increased value. You can ask an independent agent about Safety Insurance. Safety Insurance will help you manage life's storms. And Mass General Cancer Center, dedicated to providing the latest therapies and cancer specialists who are experienced in your cancer. When you hear the word cancer, their team is ready. Learn more at massgeneral.org cancer.
1: Ahead on Boston Public Radio, Republican Senator Mitch McConnell proclaimed four years ago the Senate should hold off on replacing Antonin Scalia with Obama's nominee. But now in the wake of Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, and with voting already started in a handful of states, McConnell is forging ahead with a Trump nominee. Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, senior most Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, has called out this hypocrisy. He joins us in just a few minutes.
2: Ruth Bader Ginsburg became a pop culture icon late in her life with women dressing up as her for Halloween. In a culture where women over 50 can't land roles in Hollywood, journalist Dolly Lithwick chronicled Ginsburg for a project about the first class of women to attend Harvard Law School. She'll join us to discuss how RPG reveled in the spotlight, not for vanity, but for the ability it gave her to share her experience with others. That's coming up on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. He's Jim Brady. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 GBH. Good morning, Jim.
1: Hey there, Marjorie. Uh, how are you? Well, thanks. Oh, good. Seconds. Actually, my mom's breakdown Radio,
2: is continuing, Jim, if you really want to know.
1: <laughs> All three hours today is going to be about uh, Justice uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and what comes after. We're going to speak to the ranking Democratic member of the Judiciary Committee, Patrick Leahy, the former dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow. A member of the National Board of the NAACP, former state chair of the Republican Party, a Ginsburg uh, clerk, and in between, we'll get your thoughts on the legacy and what happens next. But first, for anyone who is in shock over the death of Justice Ginsburg, and on top of that, immobilized by the fear of how this could change the Supreme Court and our country, Dahlia Lithwick, in her latest piece in Slate, says RBG would want you to honor her by doing what she did best, push on and push forward. Dahlia Lithwick, as you know, is a legal correspondent, senior editor at Slate. She also hosts Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. Uh, Dahlia, it's great to talk to you. Thanks so much for calling in.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: So, uh, Dahlia, you've uh, said that one of the great joys and honors of your career was a chance to sit down and interview um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Tell us Why?
3: Well, I mean, I think any journalist would probably say the same thing. And certainly, I think maybe any, <laughs> I almost want to say any court enthusiast would say the same thing. It's just such a pleasure to sit with her. But I, I was incredibly lucky. I got to have an hour with her face-to-face right before the lockdown Um and when the court locked down, it really locked down, as you know, and we went to telephonic arguments. So just before COVID hit, I got to sit with her at the court and do really the capstone of a very, very fun and in retrospect, I'm so glad we did it, um, powerful series on the women who started Harvard Law with her. There were nine women in her class 500-some men, and we tracked them all down, and those who were still alive and willing to talk, we got on tape, and then sort of the cherry on top was getting to go through all that material, those memories, the women, their stories, and to do it with Justice Ginsburg, who not surprisingly remembered all their faces, their names, fact-checked us a couple of times, (laughs) called us out because we lost track of one of them who, you know, quit after first year. So it was one of those lifetime dreams. I mean, I've b- been able to interview her before, but to be really have the joy of sitting with her and getting to talk about the very beginning of a career that we all know the end of really well. It was It was magic.
1: Did all the uh, classmates remember the dean of Harvard Law School asking them why they were taking the place of a man? Did they remember that conversation?
3: Yeah, although I have to say, you know, that's captured in the movies, it's captured in the biopic, you know, it's such a big part of the story, and it in fact animated the series. We wanted to ask every one of them, did they remember? The most fascinating thing is they all remember it Totally differently, and even some of the women (laughs) we got on tape were saying, Oh, I was in the room, but you know, this person wasn't in the room, and it was only my small section. And actually, you know, it's funny, memory is so tricky, I guess, especially you know, some of these women are well into their 80s as well. But it was fascinating because the number of them, including Justice Ginsburg, by the way, who on the podcast said he didn't mean any harm by it. They just absolutely believed that Erwin Griswold, the dean at the time, while he stood them up one at a time and said, tell me why you're taking the place of a man, meant it benignly and with love. So Justice Ginsburg wouldn't let me push her to say it was sexist or appalling. She said he was a great ally to women. He just didn't have a good sense of humor. (laughs)
2: Okay, a Lithwick. You know, it, it, one of the things I think is is so unusual about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, we all saw the the people spontaneously going to the Supreme Court building in Washington over the weekend, the flowers, the notes, etc., local uh outpourings of support for her Pe- young women in their 20s and and 30s. I mean, she's a, like a superhero to them too. That's kind of unusual. And what's what's that about?
3: I I love that question, Marjorie, because I think it captures sort of the paradox of this woman who, for the first 80 years of her life, was just kind of a wonk. I mean, she was really a very careful, precise litigator, a careful, precise jurist, by no means larger than life. I think anyone would say at five feet tall and less than 100 pounds quite a bit smaller than life, Um, but she somehow at the very end of her career, she used to say, you know, I'm 84 years old, I'm 85 years old, and suddenly everybody wants to take a picture with me. And I think that in that last decade, she became largely through the power of these Fierce dissent she wrote at the court in the Voting Rights Act case, in the Lily Ledbetter equal pay case, in one lawsuit after another. She started to write in a really different voice and then, you know, got compared to, uh, you know, notorious BIG and then goes on to become this icon of, you know, the tote bags and the mugs and the (laughs) earrings. And I think it all in some ways, it, it it so defies what she actually was, but I think it also maybe bespeaks how desperate women, particularly, I think, even young women, and it's not even just the 20-year-olds, it's the four-year-old trick-or-treaters, it's my son's middle school classmates, but I think they're just starved for female images of of power, of dignity, of true, you know, fervent belief in change and in justice. And I think she really, particularly in the last couple of years, became symbolic of what one teeny tiny person with a huge platform and a huge kind of
2: heart and brain can do in the world. And obviously...
3: You
1: make a point in your piece that that you... I'm sorry, Margaret. No, no. I was
2: just going to say, obviously, um, women that are 20 years old, 30 years old, have grown up. Uh, with Roe v. Wade being the law of the land, I think a lot of them are in a complete sense of disbelief that that law could be overturned by this new Supreme Court.
3: Yeah, I think that was a thing that came across in the few times that I talked to Justice Ginsburg over the years. I think she sometimes worried that young women who were sort of in love with the idea of her were also almost born too late to understand what's really at risk. And she did feel, I think, that while she adored young women, she really, I think I noted in my piece, but it's true, when I interviewed her in January, I had a 20-something slate staff yes. with me, and she yeah. didn't take her eyes off Molly. I was like a plant in the corner <laughs> of the room. She was so kind of laser-focused on young women, and I think it's because she both understands that exactly your point. Maybe they don't fully realize that abortion rights in this country really do hang by a thread. But I think she also saw that generation as so just incandescently powerful and self-actualized that they could make change. So I think she was both anxious about it and incredibly optimistic about it at the same time.
1: You know, in that same piece when you noted that she uh, couldn't take her eyes off your 20-something staff person, you also mentioned how she's constantly giving tribute to those who came before her, and you cite her confirmation hearing statement in 93. Here is uh, Ginsburg making clear that she did stand on the shoulders of equal rights advocates before
4: her. I surely would not be in this room today without the determined efforts of men and women who kept dreams alive, dreams of equal citizenship, in the days when few would listen. People like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Harriet Tubman come to mind. I stand on the shoulders of those brave people.
1: Who is in your Dahlia Lithwick, in your estimation? I'm assuming that she's in that top pantheon of people who had an impact on gender equity, gender equality in this country. Who who's in that class with Ruth Bader Ginsburg?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that she she is in that class in part, not just because of what she wrote at the Supreme Court. Right? She writes the definitive. Uh, case in 1996 in the VMI case where they, you know, for Mm -hmm. the first time say, no, you have to admit female cadets. So she's actually baking it into the law. But then also, I think the first part of her career where she's litigating those cases. So without a doubt, I think she's at the top of the pantheon, both for the legal work she did on the ground and then how she reinforced it and kind of cooked it into the law. But I think that she probably would look around and look at women like AOC at uh, you know some mm-hmm. of the lower court federal judges who she was so proud of and devoted to. She was at Payne's, one of the um, women judges on the D.C. Circuit. When I interviewed her, showed me a, a collar that Justice Ginsburg, you know, she had these famous collars that she wore for different occasions, oh, yeah. and she would hand them out to federal judges on, on on the lower courts that she was particularly fond of. And so I think she would probably just say that in the pantheon are, you know, the women who came up the generation behind her when they felt like I felt like in the 90s. Oh, I could go to law school. Hey, women do that. And I think she probably feels, believe it or not, that right there in the pantheon, in addition to the sort of empowered women, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton, who are doing the work on the ground, I think she would also really say that it's those like seventh graders who dress up as Ginsburg for Halloween. I think she really is... Such a deep believer because she had to be in allyship, in working together, in the power of collectives as opposed to individuals. I, I keep thinking this weekend I kept thinking the sentence, I alone could fix it, you know, that would never have fallen from her lips. Yeah. Because she just believed we can only fix it if we all work together and I think Sometimes we think that's old fashioned, but I think the very notion that there's a pantheon might offend her a little bit.
2: We're talking to Dahlia Lithwick. She's a legal correspondent and senior editor at Slate. You know, somewhere I read this, this weekend that, um, that when Justice Ginsburg was arguing before the Supreme Court, uh, she said something like, you know, th- th- they were all men at the time. And, and when she was beginning these arguments in the seventies the and they seemed to think that if they were nice to their wives and their daughters, they didn't really understand, uh, why women may have difficulties and how oppressive may the laws of the country were. And I read about this Reed versus Reed case when parents were fighting over, a mother and father were fighting over their son's estate who would be able to be in charge of it, and how she did this 88-page brief listing all the ways societal laws oppress women, and that the the justices seemed to be sort of startled to to hear these things. Yeah, I think it's such a good point. You know, she...
3: When she first started arguing, um, noticed that not only was she standing in front of all male, almost always all white panels of very, very privileged men, but that she was, she described it later as, I-, I felt like a kindergarten teacher. Like I had to bring them along, I had to paint a world that they would understand. And it's exactly what you're saying because they just felt, well, of course, you know, we don't want women to be, you know, famously bartenders. We don't want women to be the primary breadwinner. We don't want women to, you know, the thousands of laws that privilege men over women have their names on credit cards because we want to take care of women, right. women like this. And the sort of paternalistic worldview that they all had was, Oh, don't get me wrong, I'm not sexist. I just understand that my wife and my daughters need me to be their daddy. And I think that right... Through her career, you can see famously um, in the partial birth abortion case uh, that happened toward the end of her career when Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote, oh, you know, poor, poor women, they can't make these hard decisions and they get super sad and they need men to help them. And she just (laughs) tore a strip out of him because it was the same stuff she had been hearing from judges in the 70s, except she was hearing it, you know, Decades later, and I think you're quite right, the only way she could make it visible to these male judges who thought they loved women was by bringing case after case after case, which she did in the beginning of her career, on behalf of men. Right. And she would find the male plaintiff who was being told, oh, you can't get the tax benefits of being the primary caregiver for your ailing mother because the law assumes women are the primary care. And so she kept finding men who were disadvantaged by these discriminatory statutes, and then instead of defending women, she'd stand in front of male judges and say, look this poor man,
2: and then they could see. That was one of her most famous cases involving the widower, right, who couldn't get the Social Security benefits. Tell us about that case.
3: Yeah, that was, um, she argued that before the Tenth Circuit, and that's the one that's famously in On the Basis of Sex, um, the film, uh, is memorialized. But it very it's a very sweet story for many reasons, one of which is that Marty Ginsburg, her husband, who was a tax attorney, was actually the one who found it for her because it was a tax case, came across his desk and he sort of said, hey, look, this might be, A thing that we could do together. Um, so he procured the case and she flew out and explained to this man who, you know, as I said, was being denied the tax benefits of being the primary caregiver of his sick mother, uh, because the law assumed that primary caregivers are all women. And she, you know, sort of stood up and argued as she would go on to do time and time again that maybe you judges don't fully apprehend that this idea that the law assumes one set of stereotypes for women a different set of stereotypes for men that doesn't just hurt women it hurts men too it keeps men from being kind of fully realized people in all the ways that it hurts women and i think in hindsight, that doesn't sound nearly as radical and subversive right. as it was, but it was so radical and so subversive.
1: You know, Dahlia, last thing from me: I was watching CNN over the weekend and watching Jeffrey Tubin's head ready to explode. At one point, he said, "Are the Democrats going to fight?" He paused and then said, "For a change." And it made me think of a piece you wrote during the Merrick Garland debacle, where I think it was called, you described it as the reverse Bartleby. And your uh, <laughs> your strategy was, if all else failed, uh, Garland should just show up one day in a robe and start sitting on the uh, court and asking questions, ultimately writing decisions. And ultimately, he becomes part of the court, even though there was never a hearing. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. What is your advice to the democrats assuming that they don't have four republican votes to stop this there are two so far what's your advice to the democrats in uh 2020 and in 2021 if they fail on this round
3: well on this i think jeff is right and i think that um i mean of course that reverse. Bartleby was kind of a fanciful piece but I think the point I was trying to make was that throughout that interregnum when Justice Scalia's seat was open for nine months before an election and we kept hearing Mitch McConnell say oh the voters will decide the voters will decide I was really stunned at how quiet the Democrats were not just you know The Democrats generally, but Democrats running for Senate were quiet about this. I thought Obama should have made more noise about this. I think everybody assumed Hillary Clinton would win and it wouldn't matter. But the fact was that Republicans who are running for the Senate, Ted Cruz, John McCain, were saying in their campaigns, we will hold that seat open for eight more years if Hillary wins. They will never seat someone. And the Democrats running for Senate crickets. And so I think what Jeff is saying is that we have completely internalized somehow as a country on both sides, the notion that the GOP owns the court and we kind of rent seats there. And I think what Jeff is saying is it really has to be kind of parody in the conversation it's not mitch mcconnell's court it's our court and uh you know the statistic that i saw today that i think should shock people is that democrats will probably win the popular vote in seven out of eight past elections from 1992 till 2020 but Republicans have appointed 14 out of the 18th Supreme Court seats, and now they want it to be 15 out of 19. So I think what Jeff is describing and what I was thinking at, at least in that fanciful piece, was that that's just minority rule. That cannot be reflective of what the people want. And so I think folks really do need to not assume that this is a done deal and make sure that Republicans who are going back on verbatim comments they made four years ago about not filling a seat in the last weeks of an election year when voting has actually started in some states. I think we have to hold them to that.
2: Jolly Elizabeth, thank you so much for your time and for your great writing. Oh, it's my pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick is a legal correspondent and senior editor at The Atlantic. She also hosts Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. Uh, Thanks again for joining us. Coming up, we're going to talk to Senator Patrick Leahy from Vermont. We're going to talk to him about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Republicans' historic act of hypocrisy. This is 89.7 GBH Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. I'm Jim Browdy. She is Marjorie Egan. In 2016, hours after Justice Scalia died, Mitch McConnell declared any appointment by President Obama to be null and void, saying the next Supreme Court justice should be chosen by the next president to be elected later that year.
5: The next justice could fundamentally alter the direction of the Supreme Court and have a profound impact on our country. So, of course... Of course, the American people should have a say in the court's direction.
1: Of course, now that a Republican president finds himself in the situation, McConnell is saying the Senate will vote on whomever President Trump nominates to succeed Justice Ginsburg... And he also said that just hours after Justice Ginsburg's death had been announced. Join us online for his take on all this is Senator Patrick Leahy. Senator Leahy is the senior most Democrat on the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he ranks first in seniority in the U.S. Senate. Senator, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks so much for your time.
5: Thank you very much. I appreciate
2: it. (laughs) Senator, let's let's start with uh, what you will remember most about Ruth Bader Ginsburg's time on the Supreme Court, her legacy.
5: Well, I I appreciate the fact that she stood up for people who often hadn't had a voice before. I think of the her brilliant uh, dissent in the Lily Ledbetter case and that brought about uh, the Lily Ledbetter law which gave equal rights to women yep. in the in the workplace. That was a tremendous thing. But I also on the various times I'd be with her Everything from uh, Marcel and I sitting with her at the opera to mm. uh, being at friend's house, her jokes uh, her sense of humor very quiet, very to the point, uh, she was a wonderful, very rounded person that you didn't see that much sometimes in the um by the book reporting from the bench.
1: Uh, hey, uh, Senator Leahy, were you an opera fan Or you just wanted to be near Justice Ginsburg? <laughs> yes <laughs> no, my, my
5: my wife is, was on the board of the Washington National Opera and She's okay. on the advisory board now And so we go But I, yeah, you know, I, I will go when I'm out Taking a long hike in the morning I have my ear pods in I'll be listening Everything from uh, opera to the Grateful Dead
2: very eclectic. <laughs> well, Senator, Senator Leahy, as a uh, man who uses earbuds and as a married man, uh, you might have appreciated one of her uh, best quotes. that I certainly did when she said, "In every good marriage, it helps sometimes to be a little deaf." <laughs>
5: <laughs>
2: I think her mother, her mother-in-law, told her that one. I thought that was pretty good.
5: <laughs> I, I learned that from my I learned that from my father when sometimes. My uh, my Italian mother would be uh, tell him what he should be doing, and oh, I didn't have my I didn't have my hearing aids turned on. Exactly, hear-
1: <laughs> <laughs> Senator. Uh, we know that a week as recently, uh, is recently uh, is close to. I think it's seven days after the election. Uh, even though the election has started in six states, uh, the Supreme Court will take up the challenge of the Affordable uh, Care Act. What are the issues that you are most concerned hanging in the balance? in a post-Ginsburg Supreme Court?
5: Well, I think one of the reasons that they want to uh, hurry up a nominee, they want to kill the Affordable Care Act. And what that means is that we do away with any coverage for pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine somebody who, even though they survived COVID, uh, trying to get health insurance, without that people are going to say oh no you got a pre-existing um, condition sorry well, you're not going to get any uh, health care it would be tens of millions of people would be without health care if that was successful and I think that's one of the things that they um, they're, they're looking at they they want to make sure we can keep uh, gerrymandered. Districts, they want to make sure that you can allow dark money in um, campaigns, and they want to go after uh, uh, health care for the average person. Plus, the fact that it is so unseemly, so against any tradition. They have an easy way out of this if they want to be honest with the American public. The president says that he's going to be reelected, fine, let's do this. That's whoever is nominated on January 20th. Let them uh, nominate somebody on January 21st, and that I think the American people would find uh, fair. Fair, but those who want to get rid of health care, who want to get rid of um, any control on dark money and campaigns and so on, they they won't like that.
1: So, as I mentioned, Senator Leahy, uh, Mitch McConnell, literally an hour after uh, the death of Justice Ginsburg was announced, said there will be a Senate vote and uh, um, obviously flipping his position from a few years ago. But in terms of of gymnastics, no one, it seems to me, can match uh, the man who is now chair of the Judiciary Committee, which you once chaired. Here's Lindsey Graham in 2016.
6: I want you to use my words against me. If there's a Republican president in 2016 and a vacancy occurs in the last year of the first term, you can say, Lindsey Graham said, let's let the next president, whoever it might be, make that nomination. And you could use my words against me and you'd be absolutely right. We're setting a precedent here today, Republicans are, that in the last year, at least of a lame duck eight-year term, I would say it's going to be a four-year term, that you're not going to fill a vacancy of the Supreme Court
1: Based so on what's what your reaction here today? Sorry, my to- apologies. What's what's your reaction to that, Senator Leahy? I
5: remember um, I remember a couple of the senators on the committee turning to each other and said, What do you think of that? Another one said, Do you think he's telling the truth? And the other one said, Of course not. Uh you know, that I I mean it was it was the right thing to say. Uh if, I would have been delighted, probably a little bit surprised, but delighted if he'd kept his word. But uh, I think all of us knew that push comes to shove, he'd do whatever Donald Trump told him to. But you see, that's the, that's the thing that's going to have the biggest damage. It is so politicizing, the Supreme Court. It's saying that whoever's on the Supreme Court is answerable to the president, must do what the president says. That's basically the way it's going to come across the American people. I've tried a lot of cases in state court, federal court, courts of appeal. I never thought to myself, well, that's a Republican or a Democrat as a judge. I didn't have to worry about that. I just assumed if I got the law on my side, the facts on my side, I'm going to win. What uh, now, what this is doing is diminishing the integrity of the Supreme Court and the other federal courts so people think – uh if I, if I don't have the right political allegiance, I'm not going to win my case.
2: Well, you know, Senator Leahy, for many people who don't like the president, what we've seen since the beginning of the term is the diminution of all sorts of things that we used to think were norms and sacred and stuff. And, and um, we've had lying about, from the president, as we know, about Coronavirus, which has killed 200,000 people, and barely a peep from uh, the GOP about that. So, I guess I'm thinking to myself, why? I mean, you've talked about appealing to the to the sense of tradition and the sense of the, your fellow senators' conscience about appointing a new or voting on a new Supreme Court justice. But I don't know. I'm I'm. So far, we've only had Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins say they want to wait. On a vote. Um, Are any of the rest of the Republican senators who've been pretty quiet on coronavirus going to stick their neck out on the Supreme Court?
5: I'd be surprised they do. I've talked to a number of them over the weekend. And I was thinking about that. Uh, My wife and I went down to stand at the Supreme Court this weekend. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of a makeshift memorial when people brought flowers, pictures. Written in chalk on the uh, on the street, and I thought, if only the Senate showed the respect for the law that Ruth Ginsburg did, we wouldn't be in this position. The closing eyes on COVID, uh, we've had a we've been trying to get uh, Mitch McConnell to allow a vote on money for COVID since uh, July. And he refuses to. And look at the people that are suffering, the people that are being kicked out of their homes, the people who don't have health care. And the president simply says, oh, in spring, it's going to go away. That was months ago. Now we're in the fall and we're at 200,000 deaths.
1: Senator Leahy, last night at a press conference in New York City, the Democratic leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, said that if the Republicans uh, proceed with a nomination pre-election or even post-election in a lame-duck session prior to January 20th, uh, everything is on the table. What is everything? Both during this process and uh, uh, should the Democrats take control of the Senate and Joe Biden be elected, does that mean expanding the, the size of the Supreme Court to mute the impact? Of uh, not, what? Where are you on this?
5: I'm not sure exactly what uh, Chuck Schumer meant on that. I I think the first thing we want to do is elect Joe Biden and elect a Democratic senator. Senate, uh, neither of which is a foregone conclusion. Mm-hmm. And then we'll see if we can bring the country back to a sense of decency and inclusion. That's that's what I'd like. We could make all kinds of threats on either side, many of which could not be carried out. And but he, uh, today, I'd say here's here's the things. One, let's take the time to honor one of the great justices of this country, Ruth was Ginsburg. Then let's get together and think of a plan uh, in January to have a nomination for a replacement and have a real um, debate on it and
1: and go go for it,
5: no matter who is president.
1: As a philosophical matter, though, putting aside the Ginsburg situation and the current conflict within the body in which you serve, what's your position on the the whole notion of there being nine justices as opposed, and obviously it's a statutory issue, not a constitutional issue. Where are you in that?
5: You know, I have thought a lot about it. I'm not trying to duck you a question. I don't know
1: mm-hmm. where
5: I am. I've, you know, I've been reading the history books. I've, we've changed the makeup of the um, Supreme Court a half a dozen times over the years, but the last time was in uh, the, the 1800s. Yeah. So it's um, uh, I think it was 1869 was the last time we change out for nine and uh, before that we changed it six times i uh, it's a long time since back then I'm not I, that's something that if, if that's to be done it should be done very thoughtfully very carefully mm-hmm. because uh, what I worry about and again I started off by saying if we politicize the courts and that's what Donald Trump and mitch McConnell are doing, starting with the Supreme Court, then people lose faith in their courts. You lose faith in one of the equal branches of our government, and we're going to have a very, very difficult time in this country.
1: Do you think the Democrats contributed to that when Harry Reid was the Democratic leader and led the charge to eliminate the 60-vote threshold on executive branch appointments and federal judiciary nominees other than the Supreme Court?
5: Well, he certainly didn't on the Supreme Court because we felt this was so important mm-hmm. that nobody should. And he, he had neither Republicans or Democrats who wanted that. But look at uh, uh, Mitch McConnell greatly expanded that when he came in and added the uh, added the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And has refused to, Well, I'll give you one example. We desperately need money in COVID. We desperately need money to help. We've been had bills prepared for months, and McConnell won't bring them up and have votes on them because he wants to ram through uh, judges that have been handpicked by special interest groups.
2: You know, uh, we're talking uh, to Senator Leahy from uh, Vermont. Senator Leahy, I, I started my – well, one of my first jobs was as a newspaper reporter, but the Burlington, Vermont Free Press. And I remember <laughs> when I was up there being surprised, living in Massachusetts all my life, a lot of corruption in Massachusetts, a lot of uh, elected officials <laughs> going to jail, a lot of scandals in Beacon Hill. I remember thinking how different Vermont was um, that just it, – it, it just seemed that there was – Lots of people were in the le- state legislature to do the right thing. It was very different than Massachusetts. So I wonder, being up there in beautiful Vermont, uh, if you think that uh, we're – you mentioned losing faith in the in the court. If we are ever going to get back – to that sense of faith that we have, it's not going to be, you know, the, the, the Republican judges from the Federalist Society and the Democratic judges, you know, uh, liberal firebrands, that kind of stuff.
1: 96 to 3 votes, like there was on Ginsburg.
2: Yes, of course, I guess they could say yeah. that they didn't think or, she was a liberal firebrand. Or Tony,
1: look at the vote
5: Tony Kennedy when uh, it's the last year mm-hmm. of a president, a Republican president, you have a Democratic-controlled Said it, and it is uh, the last year of his presidency, and we, and we virtually unanimously voted for Kennedy.
2: So, do you think that's done, or are you, are you hopeful that, that maybe we're going to get back to some of our respect and, and some of the bipartisanship of the court, or not?
5: I don't know. I hope we can. I, I've tried to talk to, to that fact. I want to speak on the floor this afternoon about it. And I do realize Vermont is different. Um, when my wife and I are going through the grocery, grocery store in our home or we're coming out of church on Sunday, people go, up, Hi, Pat. Hi, Marcel. Hey, i heard such and such happen. Or, or I saw your cousin yeah. <laughs> last week. It's a different yeah. world. Our Republican governor who has done a superb job in handling COVID, uh, he has stated very emphatically we should wait till after the election for a Supreme Court yeah. justice. And um, that is a feeling I'm getting from almost everybody I see in Vermont. And and Vermont has changed. You know, I'm still the only Democrat ever elected to the US Senate as a Democrat in Vermont's history
1: pretty amazing you know senator last question for me so if you're about to go on one of those hikes in the woods with your wife and your (laughs) wife says you can only take one jerry garcia or pavarotti who do you take (laughs) oh
5: boy oh boy i'd actually put both of them because she can't hear what i'm listening to
1: (laughs) (laughs) senator good luck uh, with this really important task we wish you luck and we really appreciate your time
5: yeah. this. this uh, thank you very much. That's a good question. <laughs> Take care. Take care. Thank you
2: very much for joining us. That was Vermont Democratic Senator Patrick Leahy. He's the senior most member of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he ranks first in seniority in the Senate. Coming up, we're opening up the lines and taking your calls on Justice Ginsburg. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Radio Marjorie again, and Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we're dedicating today's show to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Taking your calls now, again at 12:30, and then again at 1:30, and what she meant to you, and what you think the Republicans and Democrats should do. Are you frustrated by the GOP hypocrisy on wanting to jam a confirmation through the Senate after the refusal to give uh, uh, Merrick Garland even a hearing, or is all fair in love and Supreme Court nomination fights? Eight seven seven. 301 uh 8970. Well, we haven't had an opportunity. We'll do it a little bit later in the show, I guess, Marjorie. The two front runners, uh Donald Trump said he would uh probably pick someone Friday or Saturday after uh the um f- uh, funeral and uh whatever other events there are in the short term for Justice Ginsburg or concluded this uh Coney Barrett, uh Amy Coney Barrett and Justice uh Logaway in Florida appear to be the two front rows, both women, both very conservative. But I'm not even sure the battle is really over them, uh, but more should they proceed at all. And as of the moment, as we've said, there are two senators, Murkowski from from Alaska and Collins from Maine, who've said we should wait until there's an election. There need to be two more Republicans who break ranks with Mitch McConnell, or in all likelihood, no matter how fierce – the hearings are Donald Trump will get to pick his third justice, and in the case of, I don't know how old uh, uh, Lagoa, Lagoa is, but Coney Barrett is 48. So realistically yeah. speaking, if she were to serve uh, as until the same age 52. as Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 52, oh,
2: 52,
1: they would be on the court uh, in both cases roughly um, 40 years, 35 or Forty years. That's, you know, uh, nine presidencies, regardless of who's in that job. In any case, we're going to get your calls, 877-301-8970.
2: You know, um, a lot of people have remarked that uh, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg was dying, <clears throat> she said to her granddaughter, quote, my fer- most fervent wish is that I will not be replaced until a new president is installed.
1: Mm-hmm. And
2: I was just um, reading that the president, as in President Trump, doubts that the granddaughter actually uh, – th- th- is lying about that. that he said that Adam was, Schiff probably. Wrote yeah, it. or Nancy Pelosi or mm. <laughs> Schumer Very had, written that, had written that. Quote. Well, you know, speaking
1: <laughs> of respect, we mentioned this earlier, but then I want to get to the calls. How about the fact that that Mitch McConnell couldn't even wait till Saturday morning to say there'd be a floor vote on a Trump nominee mm-hmm. uh, on the same night? It's about an hour after we heard that Justice Ginsburg had, uh, had died.
2: Well, I was but, heartened that the protesters were outside his house with their Ditch Mitch signs. That they were? Not- oh, yeah.
1: I didn't know that. Well, he's yeah. got a race, by the way. Obviously, <laughs> he, he is a challenger, even though he's leading by a significant margin. And speaking of Susan Collins, by the way, as uh, you noted during a break to me, Suffolk uh, University, our friend David Pelley, brand new poll, not as great a lead. And this is what Chuck Todd said to us the other day. It's not a 12-point lead as nope. it? it was not a recent poll. For Gideon over uh, Collins, it's down to five, and that's before Collins did the, quote, right thing end quote – on uh, the Ginsburg replacement. So that's a pretty tight race. It is a what tight race, heard.
2: but I think we have to remember about Susan Collins. She's always claiming she's going to do the right thing right before she does the wrong thing. So I think she's got a credibility problem mm. um, if you are not, on, uh, if you are somebody that's worried about Roe, which a lot of people are worried about. Anyway, let's start with Steve and Taunton. Hi, Steve.
1: Hey, Steve. How you been? Hi, guys. Uh, one question for you. Yeah. If
7: uh, Harry Reid was in charge of the Senate, what would he do if he was in this position.
1: Well, you heard what I said to uh, Senator Leahy. I think Reed started this whole train. Democrats don't like to hear this right? when they got rid of the 60 right. vote, a thing on uh, judicial nominees other than the Supreme court. And then McConnell took He'll it to be, the yeah, next step. Right. I would assume, Absolutely. That I would guess that he would also do what I consider to be the wrong thing, you know, and, and follow and do what McConnell's doing. But keep in mind, Steve, this is not only uh, unlike Merrick Garland, where it was eight months till an election. People on TV keep saying it's only 45 days to an election. As I said to one of our guests, the election has already started. I think there are six states, six, that are already voting. So whether Reid would do the same thing or not, and I tend to agree with you, you're probably right, uh, it's not the right thing to do. It is simply not the right thing to do. So what's your answer to that question? Putting Reid aside, putting McConnell aside, is it the right thing to do when we've already started voting?
7: I really don't know if it's the right thing to do, but I know
1: it's the legal thing to oh, do. Oh, it is legal. And there's of no
7: doubt about that.
1: No know? question. Yeah. There's no doubt about that. How about you know? the hypocrisy, Steve? But- How about the quotes from McConnell and, uh, and particularly Lindsey Graham, as chair of the Judiciary Committee, saying, you know, if I change my position, right. shove it down my throat, or whatever he said we played a few minutes ago. Right. Does, does, honor, does honor and integrity matter, or that's old school? Just look at the impeachment. And look who is in charge of what, when, and where. And then go
7: back and look who was in charge then. It's a flip-flop. This happens every single day. Hypocrisy is a part of being a politician.
1: Right? Yeah. We hear you, Steve. Uh, we hear you, and a lot yeah. of people agree with you. Steve, thank you much for the call. We appreciate it. 877 301 89 70. You know,
2: I disagree with you both. I think the Republicans are much better at hardball and lawlessness I think they are too. You're than the right. Democrats. And I think the Democrats have at least, maybe, uh, there's a lot of uh, bad stuff that goes on and corruption that goes on in the Democrats too. But I think there's at least a kind of effort to seem like you are uh, not just throwing the entire rule book out the window. And I think it's clear, obviously, that the Republicans' are, lawlessness um, is is the is the. Coin of the hour, the what is, is Coin of the realm. Coin well, the some realm. people
1: say they know how to win. I mean, that gets back to what I said to Daya bef- Lithwick before is when Tubin said with huge frustration on CNN, I mm-hmm. think Saturday night, are the Democrats going to fight this time? Right. Uh, and we'll see. Michael we'll see. in Cambridge, hi. Hi there. Uh, I love the program. I just want to start off by saying, thanks. That. Oh, thank um, you. thanks. This, this is
7: hypocrisy stark out in the open and it makes me sick and it's real easy to say oh all politicians are hypocrites when you like what the guy's doing it's so easy to hide behind that but there's a difference i i really don't know that harry reid would do the same thing i don't either did i wouldn't afford him um but you know we're 30 days out from the election and four years ago merrick garland was up and and they blocked him and it's just so sickening and uh replacing RBG with Amy Coney Barrett is like replacing Thurgood Marshall with Clarence Thomas.
1: <laughs> That's that is I think <laughs> apt and uh Pretty clever, Michael. Thank you for the call. I mean, regardless of what he and Michael's right. Maybe you're right and Michael's right. Reid wouldn't have done this. Regardless of what it is, no one can argue this is not as hypocritical as virtually anything you've ever seen out of uh, uh, a but, party well, controlling one house of Congress.
2: It's completely hypocritical. But but I, I guess, as I said before to Senator Leahy, why should we be surprised? Two hundred people are two hundred thousand people are dead. We haven't heard a peep from most Republicans uh, right, about this. Right. We have the the ruination and the politicization, and this is this is new. This is not something Democrats did. Of the Department of Justice, the CDC, the FDA, CDC was lying about coronavirus numbers. They got away yeah. with that. We even had the corruption of the weather people until the weather people finally rose up <laughs> like and said, right. "We're not going to lie about the hurricanes." I mean, there's a lawlessness and a just lying that goes on like kind of nonstop. Up. and I think um, I- again, I don't I don't get why people think this is okay. And the other thing...
1: So what do you think Mitt Romney will do? I mean, Mitt Romney stood up to the tide. The well, first, I believe, the first senator in U.S. history to vote for uh, removal of a president of his own party. What does he do here?
2: I think Mitt Romney has a problem. Mitt Romney's a big pro-life guy. I think these two women are big pro-life people. It's not clear what's going to happen to women in America in the years when abortion is illegal. Are we going to put women in jail? Is that what we're going to do? I'm not sure. <laughs> but in any case...
1: So, Marjorie, if if you think Democrats don't play hardball enough, they don't. should Joe Biden call one of the Republican senators on the phone and say, you'll be in my cabinet if you vote the right way on this? That's essentially playing Republican hardball. I, How about that? I, think,
2: you, I think the Republicans have to play serious hardball here. Democrats. Democrats, Democrats rather, because um, – as you said before, you're talking about a 6 3 majority. And it's important to point out. For decades. Out, yes. And it's important. People talk about the radical left. This is the radical right. If you look at where the American people are on choice, 77, 77% uh, in, in a poll last year, and this has been fairly consistent. People may call themselves pro life. They don't want to get rid of Roe. 77% are in favor of Roe. Most Americans did not want tax breaks for wealthy people. Most Americans want health care. Most Americans want climate change action. This is a radical right court already, and it's going to be even more radical right, not representative of where the American mm-hmm. people are on a whole host of issues,
1: and immune from politics, which Absolutely. some people think is good. But one would argue lifetime appointments, which I'm not in favor oh, of. In this not, case, may not be. And
2: not to mention the gutting of of voting rights. And this woman, this uh, woman from Miami, Florida, voted. To allow felons to vote when they're through their sentences, mm, it was a, it was a pretty big vote. It was. Um, it, it was f- a fairly big majority. She wrote to say that no, they, you can't do it until they f- pay all their fees and fines, and it's very difficult to pay your fees and fines when you can't get a job when you're coming out of prison. But do you know the, what she
1: wrote in her opinion, by the way. In me. that opinion, she said, "In the end, as our judicial oath acknowledges, this is in her decision." She co-signed with another judge. We will answer for our work to the judge who sits outside. Of human history. They write that in an opinion. Let's take a quick call. Andy and Pembroke, you only have a minute. Shoot. Sorry. Hi, Andy.
8: Hi, how you
7: doing? Good. Um my my whole take on this is any judge who accepts a nomination um just by character alone should be disqualified. I mean, at this point in time they're supposed to be impartial.
2: Yeah. Well, well, I think that's Andy, but gone thank you. by the boys, as we saw Judge Justice Kavanaugh in his own confirmation hearing talking about these conspiracy theories hatched by the Clintons.
1: No, that, his judicial <laughs> temperament was really impressive in that hearing. Yeah, by I think the way, that's when done. We, we're going to return to calls at 1230 and 130. And when we do, we should discuss the thing we broached with Senator Leahy, which is when Schumer said yesterday, Senator Schumer, Democratic leader said, everything is on the table. Should expanding the size of the Supreme Court be on the table. That's a pretty radical move, just, as uh, Senator Leahy said, hasn't been done in more than 100 years. Yeah,
2: maybe Mark Kelly will win in Arizona. He's a Democrat. He's leading right now. He could yeah, be but he
1: couldn't up. be sworn in until the end of November. No, even he couldn't. A special he election, couldn't. Right? I think it's
2: going to be tough to do it before the election, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, coming up, we continue our Justice Ginsburg confirmation with a focus on her legal legacy with Harvard Law School's Martha Minow. She is next. Keep your dial on 897 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: head on Boston Public Radio, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was careful to always say she stood on the shoulders of giants who came before her with a prodigious career even before she joined the Supreme Court bench. Ginsburg was a giant in her own right. Legal scholar and former Harvard Law School dean Martha Minow joins us to remember a woman who leaves a legal legacy unparalleled and who directly encouraged her own path in life.
2: The notorious RBG may have been a legal giant, but those who work with her also remember her as notoriously funny. In Jay Wexler's first opinion he worked on as Ruth Bader Ginsburg's clerk, she and Antonia Scalia had a battle about opera in the footnotes. The legal scholar joins us to discuss what working for the notorious RBG was like. That's ahead on Boston Public Radio 89.7 GBH. of Boston Public Radio. Today, we're doing a special show on the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the future of the U.S. Supreme Court. Hello again, Jim.
1: Hey, Marjorie. So, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg was the Supreme Court's feminist icon who not only changed the law, she also transformed the dynamics between men and women in our society. As a human, as a legal thinker, as someone with intellectual and personal integrity, she inspired countless people across several generations, among them is legal scholar Martha Minow. Martha Minow is the 300th anniversary university professor at Harvard University, former dean of Harvard Law School. Her latest book is When Should Law Forgive? Martha Minow, great to talk to you again. Thanks for calling in.
2: Good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much for for joining us. So if we can start, um, how did you know uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg? Of course, I knew her by reputation
9: Uh, when she was a lawyer and I was in law school. When I was then a law clerk at the Court of Appeals in Washington, D.C., she was appointed to become a judge. So as she was learning to be a judge, I was learning to be a law clerk, and that's when we met. Where'd you meet? Uh, We met in the hallway of the federal court building, uh, and she became Uh, a quiet uh, but forceful uh, supporter of mine. Uh, And when I was later, just about four years later, on the faculty at Harvard Law School, she called uh, one day and said, are you a member of the American Bar Association? I said, well, yes, why? She said, well, I want to nominate you for something. And I had never had anyone just out of the blue do anything like that for me. And she did that multiple times for me and for many, many people.
1: You know, Martha Minow, uh, a little uh, bit before you were uh, the dean of Harvard Law School, uh, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was a student there, and I think she graduated. Were there a total of nine women in the class? Was I right about that?
9: Yes, though she did not graduate from Harvard. Oh, right. Law of
1: course she graduated from Columbia. That's right, and Harvard refused the yes. degree. I'm sure you regret that. <laughs> uh, oh my
9: but- gosh, that seems ever since <laughs> you know she she wanted to go to New York. Her husband had had cancer, and he graduated the year ahead of her. They had a child, and she wanted to finish her last year at Columbia but get a Harvard degree. And the dean said no.
1: So, but 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 talking about the dean when she uh, w- was uh, there, what is the story? And when you hear these kinds of stories, I can never tell if they're real or they're imagined through the years. What did the dean say to the, is it eight or nine women in the class? And what question yes. did he pose to this them?
10: Is- Dean
9: Irwin Griswold, and I've heard it from uh, several of the women who were there, so I have no doubt it happened, and it Mm -hmm. happened multiple years, he would invite the handful of women who were in the class over for tea and ask, why are you taking the place of a man uh, here at the law school? and uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, actually recalled that she replied, uh, "I wanted to better support my husband and his work."
10: Yeah.
9: Um, but and whether that was tongue in cheek or not, I don't know. What what's hard to understand is what the m- motivation of the dean was in saying this. I always had thought it was a, a sexist kind of comment. Some of the women who were there told me, oh, no, he was simply trying to help us uh, be prepared for what we were going to encounter in the world. So I really don't know. But it was he he who refused to let her graduate with the Harvard degree. And when Dean's year after year would offer her a Harvard degree, she looked demurely and said, no, thank you, until the university gave her an honorary degree.
1: You never, when you were dean of the law school, you never called all the men in and asked them why they were taking the place of a woman, <laughs> did you, Martha Minow? No, you didn't. Okay. We're talking to Martha Minow.
2: Well, uh, Martha Minow, you also tell the story about uh, the famed just, uh, Justice Felix Frankfurter and Ginsburg. Tell us that. Um, no, How. <laughs> I read this as something was, about you that, I, she, that she wouldn't take her. She wouldn't take her. Yes, well uh, so it,
9: her her uh, law professors at Columbia and uh, some even from Harvard recommended her to become a law clerk and to Justice Frankfurter who had never taken a woman law clerk he did not even interview her. Um, and, indeed, she applied to law firms. She applied all over the place. She was tied to be the number one graduate at Columbia Law School. She was on the law review there. She was on the law review at at Harvard. She had risen to the highest ranks. She couldn't get a job. Finally, uh, one one judge did offer her a job, and after that always took uh, women along with men as his clerks. But there were several things that happened uh, as a result of this. One, uh, I think that um, Justice Ginsburg became very creative about what she would do for a living. Uh, She got a fellowship. She studied in Sweden. She wrote and became the leading authority on uh, civil law in uh, Sweden uh, in English. Um, But that exposure to a society that had different gender relationships really affected her
2: deeply. Well, you know, that's one of the fascinating things I've read. She's, she was 87. I mean, Gloria Steinem is in her 80s. The women's movement in the United States was kind of just starting, um, you know, around the time that she was getting into her um, career. So it, early on, from everything I've read, um, she until she went to Sweden or, or, um, and saw that the world could be very, very different, a different kind of country, I mean, she was a ex-cheerleader, twirler, somebody who is, whether she was joking or not, said, oh, I'm going to go to law school so I can help my husband in his law career. She didn't start out to be this trailblazer from the word go. It seemed to come incrementally to her.
9: Well, she was a trailblazer, but she wasn't a feminist. I don't think that was a word that people actually used at the time. You know, she was a very serious student. Her mother died when she was in high school and encouraged her to do what her mother had not been allowed to do, to go on to college and to succeed. Um, And so she was totally committed to being an accomplished and intellectual uh, person, um, but didn't describe her aspirations in ways that we would now call uh, as a feminist. And I do think there was a kind of gradual coming to awareness, even when she was a teacher, uh, the second woman to join the faculty at Rutgers Law School. And it was students who came to her and said, would you teach a class on women in the law? It wasn't her idea initially. But she started to represent uh, people, women who were uh, losing their jobs when they became pregnant, teachers and, and others. And Um, She herself became pregnant with her second child and felt some social pressure to uh, hide the pregnancy. And I think it was a combination of these personal experiences as well as the professional ones that really made her much more explicitly uh, what we would now call a feminist.
1: And and, uh, the consensus uh, that uh, has been floating around, well, I'm sure for years, but particularly with all the focus... Since the news on Friday is that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the world long before Bill Clinton decided to nominate her uh, to be an associate justice on the Supreme Court, could you describe Martha Minow a little bit about her pre Supreme, well, pre judicial life?
9: Well, while she was a law professor, she did start to represent individuals uh, and uh, women really uh, who faced discrimination in the workplace. And, uh, gradually, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, started to do something similar and created a project and Ruth, uh, Bader Ginsburg became the first head of that project and through that collaboration she argued six cases in the Supreme Court and most, uh, memorably came up with a strategy that was a winning strategy and in this respect She's been, I think, aptly compared with Thurgood Marshall, Mm -hmm. who developed a strategy for racial justice and civil rights through the NAACP. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's strategy was to recognize that men as well as women are stuck, were stuck in a gendered role pattern. And so she brought cases where the men were the ostensible victims, Mm -hmm. were the plaintiffs. Um, And she had this idea that male justices might get it more if they saw a man who was being denied uh, parental benefits or opportunities uh, than if a woman was, even though her argument was not that women should be just like men or men just like women, but that no one should be uh, consigned to a role simply because of the gender into which they were born.
2: You know, I read a, a piece as well about this um, when she came and you interviewed her at um, at Harvard Law School um, at, at, at some event, I think it was in Wasserstein. The 20th
9: uh, anniversary of her time on the bench at the Supreme Court, and so we honored her at Harvard Law School. We. Had twelve faculty members write essays about her opinions, and we had an evening of opera singing
10: <laughs>
2: well there was in in the person who wrote about this um, uh, for uh, the college wrote about her asking her about how she felt when she got a call from someone a death penalty case when there's a last minute call. Do you remember that story where she was said she was so upset about getting a um, the first time she voted in a death penalty case, and she stayed awake until after the execution, into the early hours of the morning, crying because uh, she'd gotten an emergency call about a death penalty case. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but clearly, it it moved her.
9: It moved her deeply, and she was a uh, uh, frequently dissented in death penalty cases. One of the one of the truly great great qualities of Ruth Bader Ginsburg was not only was she brilliant, she was humane. She yes. never forgot there were human beings involved in these cases, and that uh, informed her writing and her judgments, and made her a truly great justice. Um, she would uh, convey what the life situation of the individual was. Uh, One of my favorite opinions of hers is is not well-known at all. Um, It's called MLB versus SLJ, and it involved a very poor woman who was losing custody of her child to the state and could not afford to pay for a transcript and therefore could not appeal the case in Mississippi that required a transcript. And at at the time, it was understood, well, you know, the the government doesn't pay for whatever cost you have in your litigation. Uh, Ginsburg made this case not just about equality and not just about uh, whether or not the government pays for lawyers. She she portrayed the picture of a woman who's losing a child and the fundamental nature of, of family rights. And she found a way to get a majority uh, in in a case really that hasn't been followed since and certainly did not have a precedent beforehand but she focused on what was the life of this woman.
2: Well, you know, that's the other thing. <clears throat> I feel like I've learned so much about her that I, I didn't know before is is the clarity of her arguments and of her writing. I didn't know she studied uh, literature with Vladimir Nabokov <coughs> Excuse me, at yes. Cornell who really yes. um, <clears throat> emphasized the power of, of words. Her dissents kind of knocked your socks off, as did her arguments in front of the court. I mean, so beautifully. No one was no, no one was more prepared
9: for arguments. No one had more piercing questions. And while her majority opinions don't always have soaring rhetoric, she really was a lawyer's lawyer. She was devoted to the craft to integrating each case into prior cases. Even the one I described, she found ways to weave together precedents. But in recent years, the last 10 years really, she wrote dissents and sometimes felt so strongly she read them aloud for the bench, which the justices are allowed to do. One of the ways in which she did that though, was she would write a specifically written to be read aloud version because she understood that she was then speaking to the public and to Congress and not just to other lawyers and judges and, uh, and, and, these wonderful phrases, like in a voting rights case uh, where the majority rejected enforcement of the 1964 voting rights case because things are okay, she says, "Well, that's like throwing out your umbrella when it's raining I when it's not
10: raining." Morning. So, yeah.
9: I, it, so this this ability to connect to human experience, even complicated legal questions, uh, that became a signature, especially in her dissents.
1: Martha Minow, obviously no one would question the pro-choice credentials of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. But, you know, Marjorie said, she's learned a lot in the last few years. I'd learned, I think, from a piece Jill Lapore wrote that she had uh, uh, reportedly been asked to represent Roe and had chosen not to. But the thing that is clear, because I listened to something she where she spoke at NYU Law School, my alma mater, actually, she was not crazy about the way Roe v. Wade had been decided. What, what was her uh, concern?
3: Well, you know, that was
9: a speech that she gave just before she was first put on the Court of Appeals. Mm -hmm. And I think she really had by then become a scholar uh, and an activist in how society changes. And uh, her view was that unless the people are with you, you don't make changes. You don't make uh, changes that stick, that endure and uh, she saw that there were legislative reforms uh, that were opening access to reproductive choice. And she worried that there would be, uh, if the courts went ahead of where the people were, it could slow that process that would be uh, embedded in democratic politics. Um, she probably was right about that. Uh, the backlash uh, and the constant politicization of this issue uh, has been profound. Um, and, you know, other countries, European countries, came to a position much more through legislation and have not had the, the hugely divisive politics uh, that we have had.
1: Uh Martha many you wrote a piece I think it was in the Boston Globe around the time of the Merrick Garland uh nomination I think it was with another law school dean from Pepperdine or some such place
10: Oh yes uh, yes making
1: the case that the uh uh you cite the constitution you make the case that uh the Senate should proceed even though it was the last year of the uh, Obama administration do you feel the same way now that it's whatever it is six seven months later than the uh than the death of Scalia uh in terms of what the senate should do today
9: you know I did write that piece with Danielle Ch- Tasha who right. herself a, a republican uh because there were eight months to go um and that seemed uh, first of all I'd never heard of this rule it was invented by Senator McConnell uh... for the purpose of depriving uh, president obama the chance to make the appointment mm-hmm. uh... and it it unfortunately has contributed uh, severely to politicizing the process of uh... selecting and and approving uh... nominations to the court already politicized but now beyond belief uh... and unfortunately, whatever uh... might have been possible at that time at this time now it's become completely uh, not about uh, the law, not about justice, but about which party wins. Uh, and the, one of the great strengths of America has long been its respect for the rule of law and uh, the, having a judiciary that is respected regardless of people's political party. And we have a president who has politicized the courts, who has attacked judges, uh, and who doesn't care whether he tears down the entire institution in the way he proceeds. And unfortunately, that seems to be the attitude of Senator McConnell, too. Um, We are less than uh, 50 days, less a month and a half away from an election. Um, And this is now going to be the talk the whole time. It's all about politics. It's not about the quality of the court. It's not about... We didn't even have uh, a day to mourn the passing of Mm. Justice Ginsburg. Um, I find this uh, really uh, uh, tasteless and uh, not at all comparable. And above all, we're now dealing with the world that McConnell created, which is a different story.
1: By the way, McConnell's uh, statement Friday night that uh, he would there would be a f- vote on the floor of the Senate was literally, as you're suggesting, just hours after the news that uh, Justice Ginsburg had died became public. But, but if I can stay on this just for a second, Martha Minow when is it okay if march is early enough and september is too late and the point was made yesterday people have actually started voting people keep everybody says 45 days to election day actually election day has already started in uh in uh 2020 because of early voting what is the point if you were the rule setter when is it not too late and when is it too late in the last year of a president's term
9: I, I don't really uh, think this is a matter of uh, signing a number. I do think looking at the average length of time it takes to, uh, to nominate and to prepare a person for nomination and hold hearings and have deliberation is a pretty good benchmark. Mm-hmm. And it typically takes uh, more than two months to do that. Um, this is one of the most serious responsibilities of a president of the United States and of the Senate. It should be done with care, with deliberation. Uh, One of my other uh, encounters with Justice Ginsburg, actually, was helping to advise uh, then-Senator Biden when he was chair of the Judiciary Committee, and she was nominated. And I was involved with teams of people developing questions, going over Mm -hmm. her record, this is a one of the most significant responsibilities because these are lifetime appointments and to the highest court of the land that will affect the lives of everybody in the country.
2: You know, you, Martha Minow, you are the former dean of the Harvard Law School, so you know what you're talking about. I'm am I'm a reporter and a talk show host, but just as a regular person, it seems to me that that And I'd love to know what you think. That You mentioned Ruth Bader Ginsburg saying that if pe- the people aren't with you, things aren't going to work out on abortion, even though uh, the country's split whether they're pro-life or pro-choice. But I think it's about 70% of Americans want abortion in some form. They don't want to outlaw They want it in certain circumstances. The country is pro-choice, even if they don't call themselves pro-choice. It seems to me that the court used to be leading on things like civil rights. They were way ahead of, the, ahead of the country. But now we have a court that seems to be moving away from where the country is, if you look at money in politics or you look at abortion or you look at uh, health care, that that polls show that Americans want these things to a certain degree. It's the court that seems to be going backwards on um, moving away from uh, what the country wants. And I just wonder what you thought about that.
9: Well, I think that's a perceptive comment. It's not the first time that that's been the case. And in some ways... It is more typical for the federal courts, and particularly the Supreme Court, to be behind uh, the society rather than leading the society. Uh, One of the very few instances where the reverse is true is the civil rights movement. Uh, But even that took the court some time. And after all, the NAACP started its a litigation campaign uh, the turn of the 20th century and it, brown versus board of education was not until 1954 but I I will say that um, y- you think about it uh, justices are appointed they will stay 20 uh, years 30 years they are not appointed till they've already had a significant career they tend to be the age of the grandparents of my students yeah. or even the great-grandparents of my students so Um, When it comes to technology, they are typically not uh, on top of the new technological developments and it takes a while for them to understand them. Um, But but what's particularly telling right now, and I think you put your finger on it, is that we have had appointments uh, in recent years by presidents who barely won a majority, and if if they did, of the the popular vote, and instead uh, won the Electoral College vote, which reflects uh, not a representation of the uh, populace as a whole, uh... and uh... the court is not a democratic institution this is by design but i think that there is a real risk of being out of touch uh... as a result but even greater though is the politicization of this process so when you have a few uh... big notable issues like reproductive freedom uh... maybe death penalty and there are people who are voting only on one issue like that Um, It it ignores, in fact, that the court deals with bankruptcy, the court deals with uh, Obamacare, the court deals with so many issues, Um, and it's not a a referendum on those issues, but it is a referendum on the direction of the country, and that is why I think it makes sense for uh, uh, when we're so close to a presidential election not to rush to a judgment about who should be on the court.
1: Martha Minow, it's a pleasure to yeah, speak to you as a always. Yeah, it's Thank so you much. very
2: much.
9: Thank you for your thoughtful questions.
2: Thank you again. Martha Minow is the 300th anniversary anniversary university professor at Harvard University, former dean at the Harvard Law School. Her latest book is When Should Law Forgive. And again, thanks to Martha Minow for joining us. Up next, we continue the Justice Ginberg conversation with you on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie Egan and Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, today's show is all about Justice Ginsburg, from her legacy to the political fight that's already fomenting between Democrats and Republicans about filling the huge void that she's left. We're taking your calls now. We'll do them again at one thirty at eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. You know, by the way, we've only spoken to uh, uh, Donald Trump once when he was a candidate in New Hampshire, not as president, and we caught up with him. Uh, as I say, during the New Hampshire primary. And here's what he said when we asked him about whether he had criteria uh, or a litmus test for nominating a Supreme Court justice. But is there a litmus test, for example, does the person have to be pro-life, just as an example? Is 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 there a litmus test for
5: Donald Trump? I would put in, well, I'm pro-life and I would put in pro-life. I would put in pro-life. And uh, we want many different qualifications. You know, we want high degree of uh, intelligence is very important qualification, but... You know, you look at some of these decisions that are coming down now from some of these people, it's like terrible what's going on. But we're going to, uh, we're going to have a, a very strong test. And I'm pro-life, and yes, we will put pro-life judges
1: on. I've mentioned this to you before, uh, uh, but following our interview, there was another radio interview lined up, and the host was listening to our interview. And she said to uh, candidate Trump, well, you just said you're pro-life. Can you give me an example of a judge you might appoint who fits that criterion? And who did he name? Do you remember, Marjorie? I don't remember his sister. And what? If, oh, that's what, right. <laughs> who was a federal court judge at the time? And what was? Did he get wrong about his sister?
2: I think she. Is she. I don't know. Is she pro-choice?
1: She's pro-choice. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> she's the one who recently said to the uh, niece that he has uh, no principles. In any case, eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. We're taking calls about your reflections on life and times of Justice Ginsburg and about the battle that started literally an hour after the announcement was made that she had died at 87.
2: Let's start with Karen in North Andover. Thank you for calling, Karen. Hey, Karen. Well, good afternoon. Hi there. Hi. Um, I truly believe even in, in death,
0: she was a very wise human being. Justice Ginsburg's work is now going to be brought back up for the young people who never lived through the discrimination days we had to live through, and they will find out all that she's done just before they go to vote. I truly believe it is of such great value. The timing of this could not be more advantageous, and I, I just I can't believe what 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 went on. I just and how they're how the people who are not understanding her value, are are injuring her heritage. I mean, attempting to, and they're not doing very well at it.
1: It's- Karen, thank you much uh, for the yes, call. 877-301-8970. We're going to talk to Jennifer Assor, former state chair of the Republican Party, and Michael Curry, former president of the Boston NAACP. He's now on the National word out who politically – does have uh, most to gain from this fight uh, that is uh, uh, coming up. And there are a lot of, uh, frankly, I think there are pretty persuasive arguments that uh, depending on how they play it, either side.
2: Russell has a question. What is it? He wants to know how it's possible that Mitch McConnell woke up and jumped into action on the Senate floor to ran through a Trump-appointed Supreme Court nominee, but shows utter lack of empathy to the American citizenry by not bringing to the Senate floor a vote on the House-passed COVID-19 relief package.
1: Well, if- Senator Leahy, who's the ranking Democrat on the, uh, the uh, Judiciary Committee, said virtually the same thing as the emailer in the 11th 30 or eleven fifteen hour whenever Senator Leahy was kind enough to call in some things matter to them a lot. And if you watch that great, was it a frontline piece that great thing on Mitch McConnell about how after the rejection of Bork, he pledged himself to be 100% all about uh, judicial nominees. Right. And Trump finally was his, uh, his dream. And I think the great success, uh, whether, people agree with the outcome or not of both the of the trump mcconnell access is they have totally changed uh the face of the federal uh court and uh have already changed the face of the supreme court and if they're able to get through another nominee here change it for uh decades
2: marie from thank you for calling hi marie hi hi nice to talk to you you too Uh, my suggestion is this that um in an
0: election year, once the conventions are over and you're in full out uh, election mode, that at that point uh, there should not be a Supreme Court uh, judicial uh, hearing by the current party. That yeah. way, if the, the current person remains in power, they get to elect the the next judge and the party who will not going to be basically you know running the show at that point, should be able to just let the people speak at that point. Until then, I feel the president absolutely has the right. They should not be shut out because they are a lame duck or whatever reason. But once they're in full election mode, and specifically after the convention, that that should be it.
2: Uh, Marie, thank you for the call. Uh, I think a lot of people would go right to the inaugural the inauguration of the new president.
1: But again, the the critical thing, as I've said several times in this show, which I hadn't thought about until I was reading some things last night, is everybody's been doing the countdown. Everybody who believes there should not be a decision made until a new president takes over, maybe Trump reelected or maybe Joe Biden, I shouldn't say a new, the next president takes over. Uh, The voting has started. It's not 40 some days away. The voting for the presidency has already started, I think, in six states. I'm not sure how many, but it's in a handful of states because of uh, early uh, early voting eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. I'm sorry, Marjorie. You have
2: to give the GOP, and it, this is certainly not an original idea. Everybody says it, but it's worth repeating. The GOP tremendous credit because they have focused laser like on on getting uh, conservative judges they got the federal society which gives them a steady stream of judges mm-hmm. from whom to to pick uh, they have really made this a big deal in elections and Democrats haven't so it's well you know idea.
1: we I have to say I rarely credit us for anything but let me uh, uh, credit us in saying we've been saying this for the 20 years we've been on the air other than declarations of war there is nothing more important that a president does and I, I think that's and maybe this will get people, I assume it will get people to focus more on that function of a presidency. But uh, the bottom line is, it may be a little late. I mean, you know, they're, they're saying on, uh, in the last 24 hours, I don't think it is unfair, even though technically legal, to say that the Republicans, if they get away with this one, have stolen two seats on the Supreme Court, to not even grant a hearing to Merrick Garland eight months before an election. And then, and I think actually Scalia died in uh, February, so it was March that he was uh, nominated by President Obama. And then to do a 180... Uh, Here, there's a great uh, piece that the Lincoln Project, which admittedly is not a bunch of Republicans, not a fan of Trump, they did a compilation, people should check out, of not just Lindsey Graham and not just Mitch McConnell, who have totally flipped their position, (laughs) but from Rubio and a whole host of Republicans who, with great earnestness, looked in the camera uh, and and talked about uh, uh, having to wait. Until the people have spoken, and that was in March, as I say, of 2016.
2: You know, by the way, we didn't mention the impact of this Supreme Court change on LB, uh, gay, lesbian rights, transgender rights, rights, Q rights, um, because the women that I've looked at, these three women, uh, don't seem to be fans of of uh, rights for gay, lesbians, transgender. Queer Americans. But
1: I'm not – that is huge. But everything they're huge, from voting rights to environmental regulations. When you look at all that's been decided by 5-4, most immediately, as Senator Leahy was also saying, the Affordable Care Act, which Justice Roberts has protected a couple of times by 5-4 – I believe both by 5-4 margins. The challenge is before the Supreme Court on seven days after the election on November 10th. Obamacare. Uh, right, to the right. Affordable character, Act. And,
2: uh, and that's the other thing that's really frightening, I think. How many cases of, of COVID now do we have in the country? Six million, something like yeah, that? Yeah, six million, yeah. So if, does that mean you have a pre-existing condition and can be discriminated against by your insurance company? I mean, the president keeps lying is, of that he's does. protecting pre-existing conditions. As most people know, in fact, he's in court to try to get rid of pre-existing conditions through getting rid of Obamacare. So. Um, if you have any existing conditions, whether it's COVID, whether it's diabetes, whether it's high blood pressure, whatever it is, uh, you know, who, this court could take away your ability to get reasonable insurance.
1: I want to piggyback on one thing you said when you also said uh, uh, about uh, the president saying he supports protection for those with existing conditions, but he's a friend of the court and the attorney, Republican attorneys general litigation to get rid of it is for those who defend it and say, well, I don't buy that. That's unfair on your and Marjorie part to say that he wouldn't protect it. Uh, our response, I think, is how many times has this president said he's going to release his own health care plan in two weeks? I think we've heard that for three and a half years, and it's still nowhere to be found. And when his key health people were before a congressional committee last week, and were uh, two weeks ago, and were asked about the status of the health plan, Every one of them said, "Not my jurisdiction. Not my jurisdiction." Because there's no health plan. There's no alternative no, there isn't. plan.
2: There is no plan.
1: Let's go to Jean in Tewksbury. Hi.
0: Hi. Hi, uh, hi Marjorie. Hi. How are you doing, Jim?
10: Good.
1: Um,
0: so I was excited that you had Martha Minow on. I thought perhaps you would have Nancy Gertner on because she wrote. I don't know if you you saw it, but she wrote an amazingly wonderful piece. In the Washington Post. Yes, she did.
1: She's with me on TV tonight, by the way, Jean. So tune in at seven. But go ahead. Go ahead. Oh,
0: great! Thank you. Okay. Well, for everyone else who might not have seen it, um, besides the fact I'm a writer and it annoys me that Nancy can write things really, really well in one day. But anyway, beside that (laughs) fact,
1: Marjorie used to too. So,
0: oh my God! Thank you, Jim. Such an annoyance. It, it, it's an, But anyway, as a writer, it takes me a long time. But anyway, the point is that she wrote about how, really, like many young women, I'm not a lawyer, but how many young uh, uh, defense attorneys they wanted, to, who, who thought about being judges, how much she was a role model for them. And, yeah. and I, the point of the article was, I wanted to be everything that she was.
10: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and it was touching. Um, and and with a lot of facts. But I, I recommend to everybody to read I do that too. article.
1: It's a great piece. Today's Washington Post, former federal judge uh, Nancy uh, Gertner. I also, Gene, if you want to Google a great thing, uh, Nancy Gertner gave the Ginsburg lecture to the New York City Bar Association in 2011, 2011, 2013. It was a brilliant lecture, in addition to which she was introduced beautifully by Justice Ginsburg. So it's a great pairing of yeah. two great jurists. You should uh, check it out. Jean, thank Which you. Well, cool.
2: as Jean said, that the headline of the piece is Ruth Bader Ginsburg was all I wanted to be. It's from the Washington Post, September yeah. 19th.
1: Let's go to Brook in New Bedford. Hi, Brooke.
2: Hi. Hi, Jim and Marjorie. How are you? We're Fine, good. Thanks. Okay. I'm a long-time listener, first-time
9: caller. Oh, thank, um, you. thank you. I was you. Oh, no problem. Um... So, I was actually calling, um I guess, just to express my sadness about the passing of the state against Greg. She, uh, although I have nothing to do with justice, I do work in the field of um, social services,
0: and mm-hmm. she, and both her and Gloria Steinem have actually been huge heroes of mine since I was a little girl. I was lucky enough to actually get to meet and interview Gloria
9: Steinem when she had gone to ah. Um but I was never able to meet um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, which was a hope of mine. Um, so it's kind of dashed, obviously. Um, and the other thing I was going to say is a little memoriam to her on Saturday. I actually went and laid some flowers, uh, like a
7: little bouquet and a little card at my local, um, courthouse because I couldn't drive <laughs> the seven hours to, um, Washington DC, which I did think about, but decided would probably not make sense.
1: Brooke, that's a great first call. And by the way, we're in the same spot you are. We've had Gloria Steinem on the show a few times. But neither of us were lucky enough to meet uh, Justice Ginsburg. But I'll tell you, I watched again yesterday. I think it's the CNN documentary, RBG. It is fabulous. So if you want to meet her as close as you can now, uh, I'd check it out, Brooke. It's really it's intimate, and it's great, and I think really captured her beautifully. And want to hear more about her. You should stay tuned, because we're about to talk to a former clerk of hers in a couple of seconds Brooke thanks for your first call it was great
2: you know what I I'm glad you mentioned that documentary because I think that's where I saw it and it may have been someplace else she talked about her husband mm-hmm. um, how he was the first man she'd ever met mm-hmm. that cared that she had a brain yeah it was great. and that was it's one crazy. of the big reasons that that's she great. married him and how you know that that is so true 57
1: I think, years I think
2: 57 years yeah and you think about that um, women that are post 50 or certainly post 60 or 70 if you had a brain when you were in school you better hide it because you know you weren't supposed to be smart smarter than any of the boys. I thought that was a great line that she had about that. And I also thought it was wonderful how he pushed her in his career. He was a lawyer too. Never was competing with her. How since she was a lousy cook, he did the cooking. He even made the birthday cakes for the other uh, justices or clerks and stuff like that. So he was a fully supportive um, husband and I guess quite a good golfer.
1: And he moved to (laughs) Washington with her, by the way. Mm -hmm. Talk about being supportive of what she's doing. Yep. She was appointed, appointed to the bench. So
2: anyway, she she gave him a lot of credit, uh, um, and she took care of him when he had testicular cancer earlier in their marriage. Yeah. And she was so she was do it, taking his law school notes, raising their first baby, yep. taking care of him, and taking care of her job, and doing all these things simultaneously. Anyway, as Jim said, up next we continue the RBG conversation with one of Justice Ginsburg's former clerks. You're listening to 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Marjorie Egan and Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, today is all about Justice Ginsburg, the feminist icon, pop culture phenomenon, the opera buff, as we discussed with Senator Leahy, the force of nature who worked late into the night. Join us in line is someone who witnessed Justice Ginsburg in most of these iterations, Jay Wexler. Jay Clerk for Justice Ginsburg, starting in 1998. He's now a professor of law at BU. His latest book is Our Non-Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans, and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. And his Twitter handle, talk about ultimate oxymorons, is SCOTUS humor, as in Supreme Court humor. We'll talk to him about that, too. Jay, welcome to the show. Hi.
6: Thanks for having me on.
2: Yeah, thank Pleasure. you. It's a real- <laughs> thank you for joining us.
1: It's a real what?
6: I was going to say it's a real niche, uh, you know, uh, Twitter account.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you can I'd tell us about so. the, the, the late justices' humor in just a second. But um, you you talked about uh, Bars- how much you learned from uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So, like what?
6: Uh, I, well, I learned a lot. I mean, I was... A year out of law school i mean that 's one of the amazing things about about the, being a law clerk i don 't really know why they let people one year out of law school do that, but uh, what a phenomenal experience it was and I, so I knew very little uh, other than what I had learned in law school and so I learned uh, uh, everything about being a lawyer from her and and uh, thinking really carefully about the law being really precise about choosing words thinking very carefully about precedent i mean all of these things are are very lawyerly they're not you know they're not the exciting uh, things of uh, you know bobbleheads and and uh uh and the like but they they were the lessons uh that a young lawyer needs to learn early in their career and i learned them from her um, because she was the most uh careful precise serious um and brilliant legal thinker that I had certainly ever encountered then, and probably even ever since.
1: What was it like to work with her like every day? I assume any of these jobs, no matter how smart you are in law school, are pretty intimidating when you start. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> oh, what was yeah. it like to work for?
6: Uh, yeah, on the intimidating point, I would say absolutely. You show up, right, and uh, uh, and you've just graduated from law school, and all of a sudden you're talking to a supreme court justice about some you know hard legal issue and it's just like it's all you can do to 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 not kind of pass out, but um, uh, but the daily work um, it was it was really interesting. She she has people have, uh, have said you know she she was a, a night owl, so she comes in came in very late uh, to the office. We were all there at nine or whenever, and she would come at maybe one or two or something like that. And uh, and then she would stay long before, long after we've left, unless we had something to do specifically. And and it, it was kind of a arms length in a sense clerkship uh like some clerk some clerkships this the justice comes back to where the clerks are and sort of flops down on the couch and you know and uh and and, and has a kind of talk back and forth you know about the about the case and you kind of argue she was not like that she stayed in her office we stayed in ours she would buzz us in if she when she wanted to talk about a case and then we would go into her her uh her office and we would uh sit and and work through a case or or a petition or whatever it was that that uh, she was working on, and then we would go back and do our work in our own offices. And then occasionally, we would have kind of group get-togethers. If it was somebody's birthday or uh, or, or something like that, she would bring in biscotti or a cake that Marty had, had uh, <laughs> cooked, uh, baked, and we would sit around the table and 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 listen to her, um, you know, tell stories. And we would try to. Say a word or two. But <laughs> it was it was just an amazing experience when I think back on it as I as I have been these last uh, two days.
2: Well, Jay Wexler, you also wrote that she was so brilliant and so had been on the bench for such a long time. You really didn't have uh, she didn't really need much help, and that you might have done a first draft of an opinion, but she would rewrite the whole thing.
6: Yeah, I mean that. It, it, I mean, in some ways, uh, clerking for her was easier than clerking for other uh, judges. Uh, or justices because she had been on the bench for a long time and she had very uh... she was very sure of her position on lots of different things particularly if it was a procedural issue for example So. So the clerk's role was to, certainly to help her. Uh, we'd write a memo. We would dr- make the first draft of an opinion, although always according to a very detailed outline. We would turn in the draft opinion. She would completely rewrite it and give it back to us and tell <laughs> us to do it again. And then we would do that, and that would go on for a couple iterations. Um, it, uh, it it was the kind of job where we were, we were you know, complimented her, but uh, she, she knew what she was doing. She did all the work. She drafted the... She picked the word. She you know, did everything, and it was just kind of an honor to to be a little bit part of that and, you know, give her something to rewrite.
1: We're talking to Jay Wexler, who clerked for uh, Justice Ginsburg in the uh, late 90s, and he's now a law professor at BU. One of your tweets that I was looking at, uh, you talk about, I think it was the first opinion you worked on for Justice Ginsburg, where you described there being an opera footnote battle <laughs> yeah. between Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. I mean, by the way, I, I hope Everybody loves the fact, and I know some people ideologically can't deal with it, but I can, and I know Marjorie can. Is the relationship between these two polar opposites in terms of uh, ideology? What was this opera footnote battle thing you were talking about, Jay Wexler?
6: <laughs> it was fantastic. Um, I'm trying to. Uh, I, I was trying to remember the details of it. I believe that um, just so Justice Ginsburg was writing a dissent to an opinion. Uh, I think that Justice Kennedy wrote, but Justice Scalia had a concurrence. And so Mm -hmm. it was her dissent versus his concurrence, and she accused him... Of, uh, of relying on a case that she didn't think was relevant and she, she she called it the leitmotif of Justice Scalia's opinion was you know misplaced. And then he came back with some uh, opera, 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 I don't know anything about opera, so, uh, you know, stuff. And then she said, that's when she wrote that the, dis, uh, the dissent was the one singing from the wrong opera or something like that. <laughs> I was, but I do remember like I was in my apartment it was late at night I was having a conversation about like adding an opera reference to the footnote and thinking, my what have I? What, this is unbelievable, uh, and I hoped that it would go on like for days and days, and that the opinion would turn into mostly about opera. But uh, that didn't happen. It stopped after one or two volleys. But it was really <laughs> great.
2: So Jay Wexler, you know, you, I guess maybe lately it's not so hard to see this, since she's become the notorious RBG, and kind of you know, this uh, young women are like crazy about her, but. Um, I, I was surprised to read about her dancing at the Gilbert and Sullivan production. Tell us about that.
6: That's a beautiful yeah. That was story. Uh, that was extraordinary. Um, yeah, so so she was when I clerked for. She was not notorious yet. Uh, she was famous in the legal world, but <laughs> not uh, not otherwise. In fact, if we would walk around together near the court, people would recognize her. But if you were somewhere else, they might not. Um, but this, so she would take us on little outings. She would always try to get her clerks to love opera. I don't think it ever worked. But uh, so she took us to an opera. She took us to a Giorgio uh exhibit. I remember. Ooh. And then she took us to uh, a Gilbert and Sullivan production, which she she loved. And uh, you know we so we were there. And uh, it was during the day. I think I can't remember exactly where it was, but uh, at at the at the intermission part. The, the 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 people who were putting on the the production knew that she was there, and they shined the spotlight on her and and they asked her to come up to the stage and she did she was so you know kind about it because I'm sure that wasn't the thing she was planning on that day, but so she went up to the stage and they played a little ditty, and she kind of twirled around on the stage, and there was a little uh young girl, maybe seven years old, who was also twirling. And so there was Justice Ginsburg, this justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and a seven-year-old girl twirling around on the stage to a Gilbert and Sullivan song, and it was another one of those moments where I was like, I can't believe this is uh, my life, and uh, it was, it was just, it was so, because so everybody was so happy that she did that. Um, you know it was just really beautiful. She could have just sat there and said no thanks i, I 'm watching the show, not participating in it, but she was uh, she was totally game and i 'm sure she had a, a huge effect on that girl 's life and uh,
1: you know so many more of course well, obviously yours too so as I said when I introduced you Jay Wexler, one of your your areas of expertise allegedly is supreme court <laughs> humor I mean, I have to say as a long distance observer of the Supreme Court. I don't see it much, and so I assume I'm missing something. So No, no. I think, <laughs> am I or no? No,
6: no, you've got it right. There's, there's not that much humor in the Supreme Court. But what there is uh, is that occasionally a justice will say something during oral argument that will cause the, 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 um, the, whoever transcribes the oral argument to write laughter in parentheses. Right, mm-hmm. and and so um, uh, uh, ten years, uh, fifteen years ago, they actually changed what they did in the transcript. Uh, they uh, they 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 started using the justices' names who were speaking. Like before that, they just had justice, but now they had Justice Kennedy, Justice Scalia, mm-hmm. and then so that made it possible to calculate which justices got the laughs. So I wrote that up in a couple of hours, and then somehow it caught on. And now who got,
1: I got the most laughs? Who got the most? It was laughs? always
6: just. Justice Scalia always dominated, and now it's Justice Breyer. Uh, but Justice Ginsburg beats out Justice Thomas, beat out Justice Thomas regularly, and last year came had three more laughs than Brett Kavanaugh in her final
1: term. <laughs> That's, okay. You know, before you go, though, this might be a career ender for you, at least at cocktail parties. If there's ever a cocktail party again, Jay Wexler, is you wrote somewhere that of all the justices uh, uh, who were yeah. in, on the bench when you were working for Justice Ginsburg, I think your word was normal, but the most normal was Clarence Thomas. What did you mean? Yeah, so
6: we, there's this great uh, tradition at the court where each group of clerks, for, uh, like the four Ginsburg clerks, would take out to lunch each of the other justices, so you'd Uh-oh. have one lunch with each of them. I mean, that was amazing. And so we got to meet all of the justices, except for Justice Kennedy, because he required that we wear a suit, uh, and we, none of us had suits. Is but, that true? Um, it is well we own suits but we never wore them so That's we didn't great. have them in the chambers yeah so we said sorry we can't <laughs> but um so but uh, going out with Justice Thomas, it was just like a completely normal conversation, like a conversation you would have with. with him. he just put us really at ease. He was funny. I told him a joke. He laughed, um, and uh, yeah, and so so when I say that, and he was very kind too. Uh, I had a co clerk who had a had a, a sort of a personal issue that he she talked to him about, and then he showed up in the chambers with a book for her. Which was that never happened, that somebody mm-hmm. would just show up in the clerk's, you know, somebody else's clerk's chambers. So he was, uh, I, you know, I ha- hate his jurisprudence, you know, more than I can possibly express. But as a, as a, as a person to talk to over lunch, he was very, very uh, interesting. Yeah. Before you go,
1: that. do you remember the joke?
6: Yeah, it was, why did the guy get fired from the orange juice factory?
1: Why did the guy get fired from the orange juice factory? I don't know why. Because he couldn't concentrate. Oh my ha, god! That's yeah. good stuff, right, <laughs> That is. Pathetic. Hold on,
2: hold on. <laughs> I just want to be clear about one thing before you go, Jay Wexler. Yeah. That you wrote about sitting shirtless in the Chief Justice chair, screeching "Order in the that. Court" after four margaritas. Now, yeah. Did that happen, or, <laughs> or was oh, only
6: that? <laughs> only in my only in my head, only okay. in my dreams? Okay. okay. <laughs> no.
2: Just want to be sure. <laughs> Wasn't well, like a. Toga party there, with the clerks at the
6: <laughs> Yes, I can't I, I can't speak about that. Okay. I'm sorry. I have okay. to leave the room now.
1: Okay. <laughs> hey Jay Wexler, thanks for the insight. We really appreciate your time. We enjoyed it. Thanks so much. You're very welcome. Thank, thank, you. thank you for having me on.
2: Jay Peace. Wexler is a professor of law at Boston University. He clerked for Justice Ginsburg in nineteen ninety-eight. His latest book, Our Non Christian Nation, How Atheists, Satanists, Pagans and Others Are Demanding Their Rightful Place in Public Life. Up next, will Mitch McConnell get his way when it comes to filling Justice Ginsburg's seat so close to the election? That is next on 89.7 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy, Marjorie Egan. Even though Ruth Bader Ginsburg had a series of serious illnesses, even though she was often in and out of the hospital, her death nevertheless came as a shock. It even apparently caught the president by surprise.
5: She just died? Wow. I didn't know that. I just, uh, you're telling me now for the first time. She led an amazing life. What else can you say? She was an amazing woman. Whether you agreed or not, she was an amazing woman who led an amazing life. Um, i actually sad to hear that. I am sad to hear that. Thank you very much.
1: Didn't take long, however, for uh, Donald Trump to get political. Here he is the next day at a rally. I think it was in North Carolina with the crowds chanting, fill that seat.
5: I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman.
1: Join us online to talk about what filling that seat will take and how the fight over the Supreme Court could reshape the presidential race are Michael Curry and Jennifer Nasour. Jennifer is the former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party. She's also the founder of the Pocketbook Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to recruiting, supporting, and electing more women candidates to public office. Michael is deputy CEO and general counsel for the Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers and member of the National NAACP Board of Directors, chair of the board's advocacy and policy committee. Michael and Jennifer, it's good to have you both. Thanks. Thanks for having
2: me. Yeah, thank you so much for for being here. So, Jennifer, let's start with you. Uh, What did uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, mean to you? Well, I mean,
11: obviously, as a woman who uh, champions women running for office and being involved in the conversation, um, just her career was remarkable. Um, I mean, if it wasn't for her, I don't think women like myself would be in the positions that we are in. Um, where we had the same opportunities. I think she, you know, she was courageous. She was thoughtful. She was brilliant. She was kind. I mean, she was just everything that I think, I wish that people, you know, embodied more of of her characteristics.
1: Michael? Michael, when we were speaking to Martha Minow, the former dean of Harvard Law School, about an hour ago, I think it was exactly an hour ago. She said with Thurgood Marshall, I'm paraphrasing, was to racial equality, Ginsburg was to gender equality. Is that ring true with you?
8: I think absolutely. Um, and I think we'll start to, as you know, there's a documentary, a piece that uh, talks about her uh, contributions while she served on the Supreme Court and her career prior to joining yeah. the Supreme Court. or work with the ACLU and other organizations. Um, I wouldn't limit her to just um, her advancements of, of women's rights. She was a champion for civil rights, too. So um, we often think about this in terms of a civil rights compass or a social justice compass. And you want a Supreme Court justice sitting in those seats, making those really weighty decisions that have that compass. And she was um, absolutely, uh, I believe, an anchor on that Supreme Court uh, for those issues
1: so jennifer you you've been around politics for a pretty decent amount of time. If they gave a a hypocrisy award uh uh and you could give it to any set of uh Republicans or Democrats from the last several decades would uh, Mitch McConnell and Lindsey Graham be in the running for the grand prize <laughs> I guess the answer is yes,
11: <laughs>
1: oh my God.
2: Uh- do I
11: have to answer that?
1: I don't know. <laughs> well, it's up to you. H-
2: here's a different here's a different question for for both of you. Um, does it even matter? I mean, does 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 their hypocrisy on this make a difference? I've been saying all day long. Republicans have mostly been silent about the guy, the president, who's lied about coronavirus and continues to put people at risk, uh, and two hundred thousand people are dead. So, I, to me, hypocrisy here is well, tiny in comparison.
11: I, I will. I will say this, um, and Michael. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but since Jim started with me, I do want to. I do want to just point this out, which is that yeah. in 2013, Harry Reid, who was the um, the Senate President at the time, got rid of the filibuster. Yes, he did. On,
1: on not for Supreme nominees. Court, though. I brought this up with Patrick what? Lay for judicial, federal yes. judicial nominees and executive appointments, uh, but not for the Supreme court that was done by McConnell later.
11: Right. But what, you know, what you're looking at is aren't all of these politicians hypocrites. I mean, you know, it just happens to be that the party in power appears to be the most hypocritical. But when Harry Reid was at the helm, Obama was president and it basically was, we could do whatever we want since we have the white house and the Senate. And so just because we see that today, is it Is it wrong? Is it hypocritical? Totally. But, I mean, has it been employed before? Yes.
1: But did Harry Reid, just one thing on this, and by the way, I was critical of Reid both at the time and with Senator Leahy, but did Harry Reid say a year or two before that, uh, if I ever try to get rid of the filibuster for executive appointments or the lower federal judiciary, uh, make sure you play this tape back, just like Lindsey Graham said four years ago? No, he didn't. (laughs) Michael and and I'll say,
8: yeah, I'll say, Jim, I think what's disturbing, and, you know, there's a term that always comes to my mind in this moment, because I don't think the equivalence of the uh, hypocrisy that exists in government, and you see it at every level, where decision, you know, people run for office, claim one thing, and then not do it and have a different opinion when they're in the office. This is an extreme, and I think of the term Pyrrhic victory. If you think about that in terms of the American Revolution, Civil War, those, those victories where the war becomes so bloody and violent that in the end no one really won. And I think that's where we're headed in politics right now. It's by any means necessary that this, the Republican Party is willing to bend uh, tradition, uh, 230 years of the Supreme Court. February, I think, was a 230 year anniversary. The traditions of, of placement of Supreme Court justices and, and to tell that we did not advance uh, Merrick Garland in 2016 and use those same reasons um, and then say, well, you know, it's different now, we're in power. Is the quintessential example of hypocrisy, and unfortunately, Jim. To your question, there'll be no repercussions from it. People are so dug in on both sides that they'll just uh, excuse this away.
2: So, whom so do you think this helps? Um, the The Supreme Court battle, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. You know, does it help Trump or help Biden, Jennifer? Mm.
11: Depends on what state you're in. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I agree with Michael. You know, we're so polarized that I mean, you know, I I think it's it's a very um it's a it's a line that you walk, right? You're either um in the Trump camp and you want this to happen and you want a Supreme Court justice nominated and confirmed in the next 6 weeks um or during lame duck session which You run into that and you run into maybe, you know, some other folks being elected into the Senate, like Mark Kelly in Arizona, um, or you're a Democrat and you don't, um, you know, I, I mean, Trump does have folks that he's vetted. He does have names on his list. It's not like he hasn't gone through this twice before. Um, you know, I, again, it's hard to get over, I think for a lot of us, the hypocrisy on both sides, because When it was happening in 2016 and the Democrats wanted it to go and force it through and the Republicans kept saying, no, 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 we have an election. It should be the next president. Maybe a little bit here, maybe a little bit of a difference. And I can't remember who I read had had said this um, is the next president is either Trump or Biden. Whereas in 2016, the next president, it wasn't a choice of Obama or someone else. And so maybe some of the thinking is, well, you know, there's a 50-50 chance that it's Trump, whereas in 2016, and I'm not, I'm not justifying it either way, but I think that it may be a slightly different than 2016 because it was never going to be Obama again. It was going to be Trump or Hillary. Mm.
1: What do you think about the potential? It's, almost, it's so crass, but this is where we are. Uh, who Who is likely to benefit from this? fight uh democrats and biden or the republicans and trump there michael Curry.
8: yeah i don't i don't i don't know i think we're we're speculating at this point but i think it could drive some republicans to come out because they see as i've said on your show uh, um, many times before to deal with the devil that many republicans find him to be um, inappropriate uh, criminal in some cases and yet will still uh, fight for him because he'll deliver Supreme Court justices that they think will deliver on on what they care about. Um, the reality is that may drive some people out, but I think it'll have uh, equal effect on the other side. More Democrats will come out. Uh, I hope that they'll come out uh, and honor Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who did not want her seat to be filled uh, in this short period of time and wanted it the next president to seat the Supreme Court justice. And I hope they come out in, in her name. The only other thing I'll mention is this whole issue around packing. It's so funny, a decade ago, many of us were involved in the registration process and introduced to terms like packing and cracking. Um, and now we're revisiting another version of packing as Democrats will have an option on the back end if there is a Supreme Court nominee uh, justice seated um to even increase the number of supreme court justices which is within congress's power i think that is going to be a potential strategy of the democratic party
1: yeah but wait but but, but biden's got to win and the, and the democrats have to take over the senate for that to be an option absolutely.
8: correct right. absolutely right. all of that all those tips have to fall into play but we've been there before we've had short, smaller numbers of supreme court justices i think 5 uh in the 19th century um we've gone even higher than 9 at one point uh, so I think there's a, a a real strategy on the back end if McConnell pushes through a vote uh, about increasing that number. Uh, you know, I think about, I forget who it was, who tried to increase it to 15. Um, oh, wasn't FDR Roosevelt. To wasn't, it, it wasn't Roosevelt. It wasn't Roosevelt. It was FDR. FDR when they, he tried yeah. to increase it because they're going to overturn the New Deal. They were right. dismantling the New Deal. And Reagan thought about doing it when John Roberts wrote a, an opinion for him about um, using that strategy as well, and he chose not to do it.
2: You know, Jennifer Nassour, we hear a lot about the gender gap for, for the president with women. Um, black women have, have, have no part of uh, uh, Trump. Uh, white women are often divided along uh, educational lines the, the, and the, the, you know, the effort by the Trump campaign to get suburban Republican women. But you look at the, the numbers on Roe v. Wade, and a lot of people, as I say, will say that they're pro-life uh, and and it's about half and half will say they're pro-choice. And yet 77% of Americans, um, and that's been pretty constant, do not want Roe v. Wade to be overturned. They do not want to outlaw abortion in every single case. So I'm wondering, it doesn't seem to me this is going to help the president's effort to get Republican suburban women
11: well, I mean, he is talking about some women who he is interested in seeing on the on the bench, um, which I think is fabulous. I think he does have to be really careful um, about how conservative they are. Um, you know, we have we have some historic um, cases that have gone past the Supreme Court this year, including um, one with gay rights in, uh, in the workplace. And, um, and, you know, we have seen that those conservative judges have voted along with the majority, which is great. Um, so is it going to be someone who is going to, and you know, I hesitate to um, want anyone elected who is uh, nominated, sorry, who is going to, Legislate from the bench. I think if it's, um, you know, acting judici- judicious. Oh my goodness, my words. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I do it all time. We know what you If mean. they're at- <laughs> if they're acting judiciously, then then that's a different um, a different story than someone who's trying to legislate. And so, you know, a strict constitutionalist, yeah, well, they, they're going to interpret a decision differently. um, But I don't want someone who's going to go on there, whether they're a woman or a man um, and go on there and start recreating um, laws and recreating the past. I mean, that, that's something that's been said and done for a long period of time. Um, You know, we all feel very strongly about um, having the right to choose and so I think that he has to be cautious in, in that because I think even the women who would be voting for him may, it may rub people in the wrong way.
1: You know, one last thing about, just want to add to the conversation about who helps. We were, you two were talking big picture in terms of small picture. Uh, many people think that if he chooses the person who allegedly is number two on his list, This Judge Lagoa from Florida, Cuban American, could lock up a pretty critical state that's a virtual dead heat now, that being Florida. You know, Michael Curry, one of the things I don't understand, uh, I'm not critical or supportive, I just don't get it. Trump put out a list of uh, uh, judges he'd uh, contemplate picking this round, including people like Ted Cruz. Uh, Delia uh, Lithwick, who we had with us uh, from Slate, Uh, wrote a piece, which I thought was very thoughtful, which said it helped him a lot in 2016 because it convinced conservatives that he was with them on the judiciary. This time it doesn't help because the conservatives are all with him. But Joe Biden hasn't done that. He's talked early on during a debate about making sure that a black woman was on the Supreme uh, Court, for example. I think he mentioned it subsequently in another debate or another forum. Why, is there advantage to him saying here are the people that I would contemplate uh, selecting uh, a justice from. So people get a sense. And by the way, some are suggesting, including a colleague of ours, maybe should put Anita Hill on that list in light of the fact that she theoretically has uh, forgiven him uh, for, I don't know if forgiven him is the right word, but is willing to work with him. She has said, why isn't he putting out a list? And should he?
8: Well, it would be poetic justice for Anita Hill if she were a nominee, but um, I think it's, it's, and if I were advising Biden, which, of course, is not, um, I would tell him not to put out a list. I don't Why? think similar conversation around the pandemic. Right. He's not the president. Hmm. Um, and your job is to speak very broadly as a candidate for the kind of uh, judge that you would appoint uh, or nominate to the Supreme Court, but not to put up nominees. I think that's the job of the president to nominate uh, candidates to take a seat on the Supreme Court. He can respond to nominees that I think the president puts forth, and he can talk about what he would be looking for if he were elected president. It, it opens up a can of worms when you're starting to, as a candidate, start to uh, mm-hmm. give names that you've probably not fully vetted because you're not in that role yet. So I think it would be wise for him to talk broadly. Uh, let others float names. I think that's the strategic mm-hmm. part of this. Other people can float names like the Anita Hill and many others that would be great candidates. Uh, and let him sort of respond broadly.
1: You know, uh, Michael Curry and Jennifer Nassir, can we turn to the dreaded local angle, as Marjorie likes to call, use that phrase here? Uh, I have to say, I was stunned that uh, when Charlie Baker, who is the headline in the Globe Says, often uh, stays out of uh, national politics as much as he could, uh, endorsed Susan Collins in, uh, in... The main race, we saw a poll this morning out of Suffolk where uh, Sarah Gideon, who I think is the Speaker of the House up there, is a five-point lead, which is just outside, I guess, the margin of error. Starting with you, Jennifer, were you surprised for a guy that tries to keep things in state that he was willing to endorse somebody who has angered so many women who are a pretty important part of Charlie Baker's base?
11: Well, I was surprised that he that he did um, venture into national politics. But, I mean, I think that they have a mutual respect. And, um, you know, for for the most part, Senator Collins is incredibly independent in her voting record. Not Um, on judges.
1: Not on judges.
11: I mean, okay. So let's go and look at all the Democrats, and let's look at Kamala's record, and then you go and tell me that she's a conservative. So I mean, if we're you know if we're looking at Susan Collins as a whole in the United States Senate, she's incredibly, incredibly independent. And so you know, New England stands in its own little world in national politics. Um, I'm glad that the governor did it because I'm a fan of Susan Collins, and I I've been a supporter of hers and a friend and. Um, and I think that she really needs all the help that she can get.
1: Michael, I assume he breathed pretty easily, more easily once she said in the last, whatever, uh, number of hours that she thought that the next, uh, that after the election, the decision should be made, right. uh, as to who the, uh, replacement for Ginsburg is. What did you make of the Baker endorsement?
8: Yeah. So one, I'm glad she made that announcement that it should wait and Murkowski as well. Uh, yeah. and hopefully we'll turn a few other votes. Um, But, you know, one thing about this governor, I think he's not, if not the most, one of the most popular governors in the country, uh, is he's not, you know, he's not new to this. I mean, he's pretty calculated with his decisions. So I would guess that he and his team were pretty confident that he could uh, support her and not lose any ground with women voters. Um, You know, to Jennifer's point, there's sort of a camaraderie connection that we have in these elected officials in New England. Uh, And I think it's been even strengthened by COVID-19 and this pandemic working collaboratively across state lines. Um, So I would not be surprised if there's no uh, repercussions for him. And he and his team had calculated that and knew that there was an upside to it.
2: Boy, I could not disagree more with both of you. I I can't recall, except for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was being all upset about this in the Supreme Court, getting emails and phone calls and um, over the weekend from women that are absolutely – in Massachusetts women that are absolutely irate and, <laughs> and said that's it um, because of her vote for Justice Kavanaugh and also I think she has been pretty much consistently voting with President Trump and, and more Healy put it that, you know, that that he's uh, – that she's carried out Trump's agenda. So I, I don't know. I think uh, – I mean the pro-choice women in Massachusetts are a pretty uh, considerable number and – I, I think it's going to hurt Baker a lot. Maybe
8: it's the offset, right? It's the it's um, I don't like this decision. But what are the other things that I may have liked about his? Yeah, his leadership right, exactly. governor? Maybe maybe you like the fact that he led well on COVID-19 compared to some of his uh, governor colleagues across the country maybe you like uh, the work that he's done around development, you know, whatever that is, I think there's going to be um, some internal decision-making that people have to decide whether his support for her offsets everything else.
11: But can I also add into this because this conversation actually, and Marjorie, you know, like you and I should have a sidebar conversation about this at some point, because this is the dumbing down of women Mm -hmm. that absolutely drives me bananas. We are not one issue voters. And for there to be conversation about all these women who are so upset because Charlie Baker goes and supports a woman who is the last remaining Republican woman in New England is absolutely one, totally absurd. Two, the fact that women are only voting based on her vote for Senate confirmations is absurd because we have so much more to think about right now. I don't know what woman between, that's a child of childbearing age, that has a kid at home that is actually sitting there and thinking to themselves, huh, you know what? I'm not voting for Charlie Baker because of this. Here's what I wanna know. Are you putting our kids back to school? Are you having conversations with the teachers unions? Are you, what are you doing with COVID? Are you keeping my family safe? Am I going to have a job? Maybe the things that are actually going on today, but to have this conversation dumbs women down to a point that is almost offensive and cannot actually have the same, be in the same conversation as Ruth Bader Ginsburg.
2: Well, my only rejoinder to that, Jennifer, is that one in four women in America have had abortions, and Susan Collins voted for someone who's going to make those women into criminals. And I think that's a visceral reaction that a lot of women have, particularly young women. It's a personal, visceral thing. Uh, you You have done something horrible, and I think that's the problem uh, for for at least from well Let's that's back speculation God. because it's
11: not that's not actually on the table right now, so it 's speculation and I think that what's more important is is my family going to survive right now, and am I going to be able to provide for my family I, I think that that's actually Factually, today, what's more important? Maybe, maybe in the future, if that's a different conversation. But that's not on the table today.
1: I think you just had the sidebar conversation right. I on think the we air. had
2: the sidebar <laughs>
11: conversation
2: <laughs> right now. Hey, you two. Okay. Well, thank you very we much. Really appreciate your time for both of you, as
1: always. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you,
2: Jennifer Nassour is former chair of the Massachusetts Republican Party. She's also the founder of the Pocketbook Project, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to recruiting, supporting, and electing more female candidates in public office. Michael Curry is deputy CEO and general counsel for Massachusetts League of Community Health Centers and member of the National NAACP Board of Directors, chair of the board's advocacy and policy committee. Thanks again to both Michael and Jennifer. Coming up... We're opening the lines till the end of the show, taking your calls on Justice Ginsburg and what her death means for our country. Keep her down, 897 GBH, Boston Public Radio.
1: Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. She's Marjorie, and I am Jim Browdy. If you're just tuning in, we've dedicated this whole show to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, talking about her career, her legacy, her life, and her successor—how and when he or she, most likely she, will be picked. And for the rest of the show, as Marjorie said, uh, the lines are open for you to weigh in on any and all of these things. Should you choose eight seven seven eighty eight nine seventy is the number. I just want to clarify one thing. We said it earlier, but if you just you weren't tuned in earlier, in response to something Michael Curry said about expanding the size of the court, a lot of people are under the uh, misapprehension that the Constitution needs to be amended uh, to have a Supreme Court that is larger or smaller than nine. In fact, it can be done by statute, like any other statute. If Congress said there shall be eleven or four. And whoever the president is were to sign that piece of legislation, that's what the size of the Supreme Court would be. So uh, I'm assuming that's one of the veiled, I don't know if you'd say threats, but threats that Chuck Schumer was talking about when he said that all things are on the table if the Republicans continue to attempt to rush through uh, the president's uh, nominee. And again, uh, we heard a couple of hours ago, the president said he will do the uh, make the choice clear from amongst four or five women. Friday or Saturday at the latest after uh, the ceremonies, including uh, the uh, Justice Ginsburg lying in state at the Supreme Court, are concluded at the end of the week. 877-301-8970. What are you laughing about? I
2: just want to report that that this is a visceral thing. I've gotten, I think, 12 emails just right Mm. now uh, from women about Charlie Baker. Every one of them says the same thing.
1: No, I, well, also you look at the comments. They're not, uh, they're random, obviously, but there are hundreds and hundreds of comments on the story. A lot of people saying that uh, they voted for him won't vote for him again. I have no idea if that's a scientific sample. As Michael said, he is wildly popular, has been. And by the way, as soon as he rejoins the show, which we hope is this month, he's obviously been pretty busy and apparently unable to uh, give us an hour. Uh, um, we will, I'm sure, broach it with him. Eight seven seven three zero one. Uh, Eighty-nine
2: seventy. Okay, where are we going, you guys? Someplace. Not sure.
1: Who would you like us to speak to, Beck and Brayton? Let's go to oh, Paula and Bill Ricka. Hi, hi.
7: Hi. A couple of things. Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was Jewish. So was Judge Gants, who recently died.
1: That's a good. And point. they're
7: going to be replaced by Republican Christian judges who don't respect Jewish the Jewish. Um, abortion rules, which are it is not murder. If it threatens the woman's life or her mental status, she should have an abortion. And the question is whether she's allowed one. The question is whether she must have one. And the other thing is the start of the Jewish high holidays. Um, This is kind of like having a Roman emperor appoint a judge who throws christians to the lions you know
1: paula i have to paula i'm sorry paula i'm sorry i hope that judge gantz chief justice gantz and justice ginsburg their pro-choice position was not because they thought their uh being jewish dictated it they happen to be jewish and i there are plenty of christians maybe not the ones that trump picks who uh, believe a woman has a right to choose. So while you're factually right about the change in power and the high holidays, I'm hoping that Gantz and Ginsburg were not uh, persuaded, uh, were were, were not making their decisions based upon what religious uh, doctrine was. But Paula, thank you very much for the call. 877-301-8970.
2: Let us go. Don't Uh, worry. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, you guys. Yeah, I'm really
1: glad, by the way, while we're waiting to figure out which line we're going, I'm really glad we did this today, by the way, hearing different perspectives from, again, the former dean of Harvard Law School, Martha Minow, who obviously had a relationship with her, Patrick Leahy, who obviously was the chair of the Judiciary Committee for years. He's now the ranking Democrat and went to the opera with her in addition to everything else, Jay Wexler, who who is a, uh, a clerk. You really get a nice feel about one of the most important people. Uh, of our lifetime. And it's really not hyper hyperbolic to say that she changed the world in huge ways. And I'm so glad that so many people have said in the last two and a half hours, she didn't just change it when she got on the Supreme Court. She changed it in her private life. Uh, Working with her for work the ACLU and her advocacy prior yeah. to joining the winning court.
2: five out of six cases before the Supreme yeah. Court, and most of them, I think, were if not all of them, were during the 1970s. And and as uh, I think Dialifik was pointing out, you know, there was a guy whose um, wife died on chi- died in childbirth, and she took up his case because. Mm. Um, Everyone was so stunned that a father would be home taking care of the kid after his poor wife had died in childbirth, and she fought for him to get the benefits that he otherwise would not have been entitled to because they only thought the people that needed those benefits were women who lost their husbands. You know, mm. it's just – she she did a lot of that uh, kind of thing. I thought there was a funny case about – was it Oklahoma the case about um, where you, can, you could buy beer at, at – you had to wait till you were 21 to, if you, to buy beer if you were a man, but women yeah. could buy the beer at 18 yeah. – <laughs> And and said, she represented
1: a man, right?
2: <laughs> I don't know who she represented, but the, the point was: this is ridiculous. The women could buy the beer at eighteen; the men have to wait till they're twenty-one. So it was that same sort of um, patronizing view. Of women that, you know, teachers got pregnant, lost their job. She represented teachers in New Jersey. And this was in the 1970s. You got pregnant, you lost your job. Remember Elizabeth Warren talked about being pregnant and um, being threatened with losing her job? People forget, you know, that, you know, gosh, I was a reporter when if your husband was beating the you know one out of you and you went to the judge, the judge might say to you, hey, sweetheart, you know, this is a private matter. Go home and kiss your husband and make up. And yep. in Massachusetts, that changed in the 1970s when a man went home and killed his her husband, her, his wife, who had been complaining about battering. So people forget it wasn't that long ago that the whole world for women was totally different. Couldn't well, not that long card. ago.
1: We, one of the things we left out of this discussion, which bears mentioning, is we have discussed with a couple of people today – that after graduating, I think tied for first class, uh, yeah. first place in her class at Columbia Law School, she couldn't get a job. She couldn't get a clerkship. Frank Felix Frankfurter on the Supreme Court would not even interview her. She couldn't get a job. And you? who else couldn't get a job except secretary after she graduated high in her Sandra class at Stanford O'Connor. Law School?
2: Sandra Day O'Connor. Right.
1: Number one and number two women uh, ever on the Supreme Court. Neither of them could get jobs as lawyers.
2: And just to finish out that story about Ginsburg, she went with her husband. Her husband had been in ROTC, so they went to wherever mm-hmm. it was uh, that he was serving. And, and um, she wanted to get a job, a, a level five Social Security job, and she was mm-hmm. pregnant. And she couldn't, so she ended up getting a job as a as a clerk typist. But what's interesting is um, many of the stories refer to how her trip to Sweden, where she saw a different kind of equality between yeah. men and women, was a real page-turner yeah. for her, that she hadn't really thought these things through. Because, again, she was 87. Um, she was a young woman when the women's movement was just beginning to uh, to take uh, hold again in the United States. Neil in Boston, thank you for calling.
1: I Hi, Neil.
5: Hi. Hi. Uh, thank you for taking my call. It's the first time
8: I call it here.
2: Thank you.
5: Thank you. Um, um,
8: listen, I just want to say about Justice Ginsburg, I was a little disappointed in 2016
5: when she kind of, in my opinion, lowered uh, herself and her position as a Supreme Court just by um, involving herself in uh, political opinions about the candidates. <clears throat>
2: Yeah, she criticized it. Trump and um, she called him
1: a faker and yeah, she later said she apologized. made a mistake but I I I agree with you yeah. Neil. I'm That's I'm glad you actually brought it up because we had forgotten it. I thought it was inappropriate and frankly I I am no legal expert as all of our listeners know. I thought it was so inappropriate that maybe it was appropriate for her to recuse herself from cases involving uh the president but i would have to say in a lifetime of incredibly good work it's a blip an unfortunate one but a blip neil thank you uh uh, for bringing that up 877-301-8970 yeah you know it's it's also uh, uh horrible i know this and we're doing it too but you know it's three days it literally was an hour until uh, a remembrance of this giant uh, in American history became a political fight, and I said it early in the show, and I'll say it again: Mitch McConnell could have waited till Saturday morning to say there will be a vote if the president puts forward a nominee. Uh, but an hour later, just like I think it was only an hour or two after Merrick Garland that he announced in 2016 that there would be no hearing and no consideration, which uh, is what happened. Jen in Rhode Island, welcome to the show, hi.
0: Hi,
4: um, I'm a first time caller also, and I love your show.
1: Thanks. It's a good
7: way to stay informed when I'm
0: driving. Well, thank you. Um, as to uh, the notorious RBG, I could not be more grateful to have had such a strong, gracious
10: human
4: uh, as someone who inspired not only me, my daughter and countless others she was fallible and she admitted it she was humorous
10: and
0: -hmm. wasn't afraid to show it she was a brilliant brilliant mind and we're very lucky she was there at all and we probably will never see another of her strength or character
1: jen how Uh, old is your daughter if i may ask how old's your kid
0: she she is 13 now
1: I'm so glad I was hoping she'd be young because one of the things that I loved the most on the weekend coverage was hearing little girls and little boys, but mostly little girls who were single digits or young teens like your daughter talking about how much uh, Justice Ginsburg meant to them. And in my, many of these cases, it wasn't just the supervi- superficial, I love notorious RBG, but they knew something about her in ways that I think most kids – know virtually nothing about other Supreme Court justices in terms of substance. So I, I actually, I love that. Jen, thanks for your first call, too. We have bad connections, so we've got to let you go. Isn't that the case? I mean, you have two daughters, and my two daughters are now grown up. But when they were a lot younger, they oh my God. had the same... They were affected the same yeah. way by Ginsburg as a big time. Jen's daughter was. no. Boring
2: to a friends you know, several emailers have pointed out that Biden on Friday night also mentioned, after he said it was sad news about Bader Ginsburg, when his plane landed after his campaign, that he want, thought the next president should pick the next Supreme Court justice. So I just want to point out he. Well, did I believe, mention,
1: but it, but I understand you're trying to be fair and even-handed. I believe that was after McConnell said there'd be a vote.
2: Oh, it was. So, it was.
1: Uh, I think that I, I don't know if he unilateral. Would have, uh, but if the point of the emailer is they both should have shut up, maybe that's the case. But I guess he was responding to, uh, to uh, uh, what McConnell had to say. And by the way, as far as I know, unless any of our colleagues tell us otherwise since we've been on the air since 11, we are where we started the day. That there are two members of the Senate, uh, Murkowski from Alaska and Collins from Maine, who say the next president and it might be Donald Trump should decide who replaces, uh, justice, uh, Ginsburg. And as most people who can do a little math, know, you got to get to four. If you want to stop the nomination, because if it gets the three with a 53 to 47 split in the Senate, that would leave it a 50, 50 tie. And as you all know, the vice president is the president of the Senate and can break a tie as Mike Pence could and he would be the 51st vote to confirm yeah. whoever it is. So there has
2: to be four Republicans, nominee. correct?
1: Have to be four. Assuming the Democrats all uh, 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 stay together, which is, I think, a fairly You know
2: assumption. what else was what is interesting to read about her for all the um – uh, working mothers that are overwhelmed and talk about how difficult it is. You know, the the second shift, working all day, coming home and taking care of the kids. To, to look at her life, her husband was unbelievably helpful, as we said before. He did the cooking, uh, did a lot of the childcare, but she got a had a nanny from eight to four, and then she would come home and be with the little. I think their first child was a girl. It might have been a boy. I'm not sure. Anyway, the first child from you know from four to eight or whatever time the kid went to bed. And then she just got up, she worked until the, till the wee hours of the morning every night. I mean, it takes incredible discipline to be able to do that. But she managed to do it because she was disciplined because she had a husband who picked up a lot of the domestic chores and was very, mm-hmm. And she said, she began dating him because he was the first man she this. went out with who noticed <laughs> that she had a brain. I absolutely love that.
1: That's one of my favorite parts of the stories from the weekend.
2: I know. It's it's, great. it's it's terrific. Astrid and Gloucester, And they thank apparently,
1: you. from everything, they great apparently marriage. had an incredibly yeah, wonderful relationship for yes. almost 60 years. And he was not sorry. jealous Astrid. of her
2: success, even though they were both lawyers, which is another lawyers, uh, yeah. wonderful thing about him. Astrid
7: and Gloucester, hi.
1: Astrid, I'm sorry to interrupt. Hi.
7: That's okay. That's okay. I just want to, I had to call in because my my next door neighbor growing up and of course because in Gloucester you never move two more two feet from where you were born, um, <laughs> I still live in the same house. Um <laughs> but my so my next door neighbor's uh wife was um Sharon Frontiero in Frontier v. Richardson. Oh um, and oh. so she, my first year of law school was the, I forget, must have been the 25th anniversary of, of that case. And so they, uh, we got this big expose in the Gloucester Daily Times and I brought it into my con law professor and I was so excited because I said, you know what, I bet Sharon would come in and talk to us. And my con law professor, whom shall we name- nameless said, read the article and one of the things that my neighbor did was she, um, she went on to become a really ardent supporter of the bookmobile and she got married and she raised an absolutely fabulous kid. And she and her husband have probably one of the most equal marriages I've ever seen in my entire life. But my con law professor was, Upset because she said one of the things that she did was she wrote two harlequin romances and she said, this is terrible. This is terrible for feminism. And when I talked to Sharon, she goes, yeah, some people say that, but I'll tell you, Ruth never said that. Ruth was like, you do what you want to do. That's the whole thing. It's like, you know, feminism is about making sure that you can have those decisions. You can choose what you want to do. And, you know, as much as Jennifer Nasor says, oh, people of childbearing years don't care about that. Guess what? I do care if my child has access to being able to terminate a pregnancy if she wants, wants to or not. Astrid, right, I, I, I just have to
1: cry. In fairness... In fairness to Jennifer, she didn't say women don't care about it. She said women aren't single-issue voters. That's what her uh, – uh, and by the way, just so I'm clear, so I don't I to yeah, embarrass I got the myself, frontier the case Chris you're talking right about here. is the military benefit case, yeah. right? She was Equal li- benefits. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Lieutenant yeah. of the United States yeah. Air Force, she wanted housing and medical benefits for her husband whom she claimed was a dependent. But at the time, servicemen could claim their wives as dependents and get benefits. But service women had to women prove can, their husbands oh, were great. dependent on them for more than half their support. Her husband didn't qualify under this rule, and the case went to the United States Supreme Court, as Astrid just said. It's crazy.
1: Astrid, thanks for the call. And the neighbor's story. I like the thing that in Gloucester nobody <laughs> moves. anybody <laughs> well, built so in up Gloucester there. never moves. What did she say? More than two yeah. houses uh, down. Is that? What? You know what? I realized we have not played any sound in three hours. Oh my gosh! From Justice Ginsburg herself. So this is this is a personal moment. Here is the sound of Justice Ginsburg uh, recounting the advice her mother gave her. This is from an interview she did in uh, 2012.
2: She
9: had two messages for for me in my growing up years to be a lady. Don't be distracted by emotions like anger, envy, resentment. These just sap energy and waste time. And the other was to be independent. Yes, she hoped I would meet Prince Charming and live happily ever after, but she stressed the importance of being able to uh, manage on my own.
2: Gee, Jim, can you imagine what life would be like if you didn't deal in anger, envy, and resentment? (laughs)
1: No, she was talking about women. She wasn't talking about men. Oh, okay. It's fine for us to live with anger, envy, and resentment. I think let me be clear here. No,
2: that was, a, that was a great quote. And the independence thing is a really great one to remember. Suzanne from Dartmouth, thank you for calling.
1: Hi, Suzanne.
0: Hi, This I'm a first-time caller, and I've written to thank you for a while. I love you both. Um, I'm a retired nurse. I worked in Phoenix, Arizona, 1973, Big Hospital, where we did abortions. And the case that stands out in my mind is the nine-year-old Mexican girl that was in for an abortion yeah. playing with Barbie dolls in the bed. Abortion's not going to go away. It's just going to go underground, and women and children will be affected by it. And the, uh, the average age of the people having abortions at that time was 12, 13, and 14.
2: Wow. Suzanne, thank you so much for that call. And and also, you know better than I do, but because of birth control, because of Planned Parenthood, because of access uh, to cheap, uh, affordable birth control, abortion rates are, are, have been going down. You know, that's one of the uh, ironies that the right. same people who want to take away abortion rights want to take away uh, birth control. And what's going to happen then? Just face it. I mean, those people who want to take away those rights—they
0: have access to it. They're taking away the rights from us, but they all have access to it.
2: Yeah,
1: I, Suzanne, that's a great is, call on a lot of fronts. I always like to ask Thanks this for your question: first one. All these people your that are so one. Go opposed ahead, I was to contraception, I was waiting.
2: <laughs> and they don't like—they think this is against God's law. Where, where are their families of ten? and 12. I mean, well,
1: Coney Barrett, by the way, Amy Coney Barrett, has uh, seven kids. She
2: has seven kids. Two of them are adopted from Haiti. One oh, they of are? Them, uh, uh, um, I'm not sure if the third one is adopted or not, but the, one of the children has a special needs thing, so obviously she's a great and generous woman. She has four mm-hmm. children, though, Jim, and I would argue if, you don't, if you've been married for 30 years and you've only got four kids, I don't know. You could have fertility problems, but I suspect what's really going on is you are like 99% of American women, or I should say 90% of American Women, you were using birth control and men are using it too. So, the well, you know, speaking of,
1: speaking of abortion, one, and hypo- I hate to use the word hypocrisy because I'm a great admirer of John McCain, mm-hmm. but you remember oh, the yeah. presidential moment, one of the great moments that gets to your point of before about where people really are, even if they call themselves pro life. And again, I consider him as about as honorable a soul on most counts, other than maybe the Sarah Palin thing. Uh, uh, Is He was asked when he was running for president, I'm not sure which time, if your daughter came home pregnant, what would you do? And Senator McCain says, well, we'd bring the family together, we'd have a conversation and discuss what to do. And as soon as the day ended and it became clear that that was not an acceptable answer to actually have an intelligent conversation with your daughter and your family about what to do because that demonstrated that one of your choices might be to have an abortion, obviously – he unfortunately corrected himself, and I use the term "corrected" loosely. Uh, I think before the day was over, maybe the next morning, so that the pro-life forces were satisfied that he was uh, on the team. And also, we played the sound before that—that—that that, that, you know, what Trump said to us when he was a candidate in New yep. Hampshire on the radio that he's pro-life, he's been pro-life, etc. He has appointed pro-life judges almost exclusively. Is he pro-life? I mean, it uh- is
2: well, he used to be a pro-choice Democrat. Exactly.
1: So exactly. I
2: guess he's had an epiphany. You know what my favorite my, – one of my favorite quotes from for from, from all you long-married people out there, I love her quote and she says – Ginsburg? Yes. And um, forgive me, I forget – I think it was her mother-in-law that said this to her. It might have been her mother though. But that in every good marriage, yeah. it helps sometimes to be a little deaf. Yeah. <laughs> your wife is going on and on. Your husband's going on and on. Oh, gosh, I – I couldn't hear you, sweetheart. You know, I had the earbuds in. Or I you don't tried that one on Senator
1: Leahy in the first hour. How'd that go over with him?
2: Oh, he loved it, didn't he? I think he did. I think he did. Okay, we're going to Melissa in Cambridge. Thank you for calling, Melissa.
1: Hello, Melissa.
2: Hey, good afternoon.
4: I'm you calling too. because I have a bit of a personal experience that really speaks to the work that um, Justice um, oh, Ginsburg did back in the early 70s. And it also comes with sort of a question to ponder as we're sort of coming to the end of your show, and that is, had um, uh, Justice Ginsburg not become Justice Ginsburg and her record with the ACLU Women's Project been her legacy, would she have remained as somewhat of a hidden figure in our history? So I want to sort of just touch very briefly on those. Here's how I connected. By 1976, in her role, she had raised the level of judicial scrutiny given to gender in its application of the Equal Protection Clause. That was significant in a case that I was a major. I was the federal pl- plaintiff in a federal lawsuit oh. uh, brought against Major League Baseball for women's access to locker rooms. Oh, and
2: by- I know
1: who this and- is. <laughs> So do I. And by the way, golf. your case, golf. Melissa. Before you continue, yeah. I think Martha Minow brought up your yeah. case when we were talking. But continue.
4: <laughs> I played golf. Yeah, my dad and I played golf with uh, Dan and Liz Egan. Yeah, times, that's so right. right. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. So anyway, uh, but to bring it back to the '70s and my case and why this matters with Ruth Bader Ginsburg um... is that the woman who by lottery became the judge in my case on the southern district court of of manhattan which we all know today in terms of where we think trump may one day be um, it is the court in manhattan dodge uh, constance baker motley an african-american mm, woman sure. She was the very first judge ever appointed to the mother court of our country, which is this court, founded before the Supreme Court. She was also, by Lyndon Johnson, made the first African-American woman ever appointed to the federal bench. And by lottery, she gets my case. And why is this important, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg had done? Because at that point, she had been uh, fighting on the front lines as an attorney at the same time that Bader Ginsburg was, but she was fighting for racial justice. But they were both fighting using the 14th Amendment and Equal Protection Clause. So I want to bring this around to the notion that Ruth Bader Ginsburg is often thought of as the Thurgood Marshall of gender discrimination. And I would like to posit that Constance Baker Motley, who was an African-American woman, uh, succeeded in arguing 10 cases before the U.S. Supreme Court in the 50s and 60s and wrote the brief for Brown versus Board of Education, worked closely with Thurgood Marshall, was sent to the South to argue the segregation cases of James Meredith, of Charlene Hunter Galt, got Martin Luther King Jr. out of jail, got the children in the Children's Crusade back into the schools in Little Rock, that she is a forgotten figure. She's a hidden figure. And yet she did what what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was doing for women's rights at that point, and she did them for racial justice. But both of them were fighting for the same thing.
1: Can I and- one up Melissa? Can I answer your question by sort of one upping you in this thing? You said had she not, I think your question at the beginning, and that was actually a wonderful great call. lesson. Yeah, a great lesson. Don't go away yet, though. Is your point was had she not been a justice on the Supreme Court, uh, would we know of the incredible work she did prior? You're, I don't know if you were listening, Jay Wexler called us, he's now a law professor at BU, who was her clerk in 98 and 99, and he said before she became the notorious RBG, and I think this to be true, they could walk down the street, and other than when you were near the Supreme Court building, no one knew who she was. Right. And so the yes. irony of all is it wasn't her work before being a justice, it wasn't even maybe her work as a justice until she became a celebrity justice, where everybody, you know, pierced the surface and realized the work that this iconic figure had done. So I think you're sadly right that we probably yeah. wouldn't have. That was a fabulous. Melissa, folder. thank Thanks you. For thank you very much. It. Thank you.
2: Some regards Plain to of my sister. Case, that's yeah. Pretty good. You, know, you know, though, we haven't mentioned this today. Maybe we can before we go. That it was also that? well her her incredible strengths. She had. She had cancer in, in, when she was young, then she Several had times. Pancre- Three times? pancreatic cancer. Then she had the, the broken ribs. Then she had the tumors they found in the broken. You know, when looking at the broken ribs for the at the pancreatic cancer. I mean, yeah, she was amazing. on chemotherapy, radiation. She's writing writing opinions from her hospital bed. She's eighty seven years old. I mean, I, I I I mean, I have a cold and I, I can't function. I mean, this was you know of I thought where you were going with this. Courage
1: well, beyond her physical courage, her physical strength, we've all seen videos oh, yeah. of her working out. But you know <laughs> what I saw this weekend for the first time? Did you see when Colbert try to do the workout with her? Could I mean, know- first of all, I can't believe she agreed to have this film, <laughs> which is really spectacular too. But, you know, it seems, again, I, I'm sad I never got to meet her, but from all the stories you hear from people who did know her, a lot of the people we talked to today, uh, uh, she was incredible human, in addition to a brilliant and incredibly courageous judge and jurist. So uh, it's a, it's a, you know, obviously it's a huge loss for this country, and may her replacement be somebody who operates in her
2: have Time for any more? So are we out of time. That's it. Oh, that's it. I'm we sorry, don't. we didn't get to. Any but I'm really more.
1: glad, by the way. I'm really glad and, uh, that we decided to do this today. It was. Uh, it, yeah, I'm really glad we did this.
2: Well, you know, it shows. Um, there are some wonderful leaders, and she was certainly one of them. I mean, not elected, obviously, but on the Supreme Court for all those years, and a judge before that. And she was what we can all aspire to, I guess. Anyway, we're done. Tune in tomorrow for Frontline's Michael Kirk, CNN's John King, and Boston Globe business columnist Shirley LeYoung. We want to thank our crew: Chelsea Mers, Zoe Matthews, Hannah Jubilee, and Aidan Conley. Our engineers, is John the Clair Parker. Our engineers who keep our remote studios running. Are Miles Smith and Dave Goldstein. You got Nancy Gertner on TV tonight, Jim? Is that what you said?
1: I do, but before I tell you what else is on TV, let me just say you just said, you know, Michael Kirk from Frontline. Well, Michael Kirk is on the MARA, and I've watched it. Is there quadrennial? Is that the right word? Every four oh, years, Frontline and yeah. Michael and his colleagues do The Choice, which are these in depth profiles of the two major parties' candidates, and I watched it over the weekend. It's going to air tomorrow. And streaming tomorrow too. It is brilliant. So we're going to talk to him about the choice. Uh, where you'll learn a lot about Biden and Trump that my guess is you didn't know. Tonight, uh, two guests for the whole show. I rarely do that. Nancy Gardner and former Chief Justice of the State Supreme Judicial Court, uh, Margaret Marshall, are oh, going to great. join me. They'll be with me oh, for the whole half hour to talk both about the legacy of Ginsburg, who they both knew quite well. Not surprisingly. And uh, in the second half of the show, we will delve into the successor issue and some of the political issues as well. So you know what all those eight, three o'clock. those women
2: have in common? They're all brilliant, yeah. but they can explain complicated concepts to you like it's A, B, C. And it's really I a agree. great skill.
1: Anyway. Talk show hosts are supposed to be able to do that, Yeah, too, well, you
2: know? I'm working on it. Put it that way.
1: <laughs> I <didn't> mean you.
2: <laughs> I'm Marjorie Egan. That's
1: it. <laughs> You're Jim, Jim Bradley. Bradley.
2: Thank you very much for tuning All in. Right. Please tune again tomorrow Thanks, and enjoy the day.